Hey, Gabe. Hey, what's up, Tim? I've been watching this terrible TV movie about a Russian nuclear bomb on a runaway train heading towards Denver for three hours now. Enough is enough! I'm tired of these Denver-threatening nukes on this Denver-bound train! Tim, I think, once again, you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. And I'm joined today by my co-host and amateur atomic train conductor, Gabe. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Tim, for having me. I, I have no qualification to be here other than uh, I know Tim, and he forced me to watch this this terrible, terrible movie. Uh, much apologies. Well, you've gone on a number of train trips, so I count that as qualifications. We are also excited to be joined today by our friend and bad movie connoisseur, Elliot. Elliot, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Tim. I'm uh, happy to be here today with you guys. I realize that my main qualification is that, much like Megan Seeger and Norris McKenzie, I too ran out of gas in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this movie, right? I appreciate you being here. I bet you wish you didn't tell us that you were a fan of bad movies, because we could have picked any number of great, good quality nuclear movies that are out there, but we picked this one especially for you. We all got aboard the 1999 TV movie, Atomic Train a B-movie disaster film about the perils of rail travel in America and the dangers of cutting corners on cost when it comes to hauling weapons of mass destruction. First question, have any of you heard of this movie before I asked you to watch it for the podcast? Uh, I can safely say not only had I not heard of this movie, but I am not sure that I could name a single Rob Lowe movie before his before West Wing. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, same here. I... I had no idea that this piece of garbage existed <laughs> or that they were doing stuff like this back in. Uh, I was busy watching Friends and stuff like that. I did not know about this kind of crap. So, bit of background for this. It was a TV miniseries, which was, a, I guess, a pretty big deal for the National Broadcast Corporation, NBC. Uh, I don't hear this term very much, but this was Sweeps Week. Remember when you'd have to set the how much you could charge advertisers so you want to get your best show during sweeps week or sweeps month. So NBC needed to pull out all of the stops. And this time it happened to be included the brakes on an atomic train. I clearly wanted to make this. They bring some big names to this or they did. We got some, uh, we got some high powered actors in here, like Rob Lowe, who had been doing a lot of TV stuff. You know, we knew him from, from way back in the day. Uh, he was in, you know, Sid Elmo's fire and a bunch of these breakfast club style movies with that generation of actors. Uh, we also had people like Kristen Davis, who plays his wife. I don't know when Sex in the City came out, if this was before this or after this, whenever that got started, but she was also, I guess, on Melrose Place. And a couple other big-named actors throughout this. We'll talk about them during the plot, but they also brought out some, some big-name directors, the dynamic duo of Dick Lowry, who did the Project Elf movie. So Elf, the... Uh, Stuffed alien figurine. Didn't you give me an Alf Pog once, I feel like? At one point, yeah. yeah. They did a movie about that, and he directed it, including Smokey and the Bandit 3. So really some good stuff. And David Jackson, who did a number of TV episodes like Lois and Clark, Nash Bridges, Charmed, and a, I don't know what this is, but something called Death Train. So this guy really <laughs> does not like trains. Or he only likes to do movies about trains that 
that go awry. Trades that kill people. We, we couldn't find out what the ratings were, if this was a successful movie for NBC, but uh, people that have seen it, like us, go on Rotten Tomatoes and give it a 33% rating, which I would say is a little generous. Perhaps generous, yes. I also feel it's important to put it into context here. Like, Speed came out, this was 1999, Speed came out in 1994, ah. Independence Day... Where, you know, they also destroy an American city or American cities. That was 1996. This is sort of the uh, the inspiration that I think the creators are dealing with. Yeah, that makes sense. I forgot about Speed. Um, it also came out a couple of weeks after Columbine, the Columbine shooting in Colorado. So definitely when you would read like upcoming reviews, like if you pulled out the TV guide and it said what was coming up, it had stories about how maybe this is not the best time for Colorado to be blown up. Um, but nevertheless, they put it out there, and they even included a disclaimer at the end of the movie to tell viewers that this is not based on fact, any sort of fact, it's all fiction, and the network did not, quote, suggest or imply that any of the events could actually occur. Which I feel like is like the most unnecessary disclaimer. You right. know, like yeah, I, I don't think anybody was watching this movie under the impression <laughs> that this was poss- remotely possible. Exactly. So we'll run through the plot right now because we'll we'll go through a little bit. It's some it's some ridiculous things that happen here and there. I don't really recommend people to watch it. It's three hours long. It kind of felt like seven hours long. But the big overarching story is that there is a train with no brakes got chemicals uh waste chemicals and it's packed with lots of bad stuff i mean bad chemicals this nuclear weapon and then lots of bad acting going on so no this is a fully (laughs) fully loaded train and it's it lost its brakes it's headed toward denver uh they don't know how they're going to stop it and the whole movie is about them trying to stop this disaster exactly and it starts with just the right tone setting moment there is a montage, a foreboding montage of train disaster footage. It woke hundreds out of a deep sleep. At night falls in Omaha, the rescue teams have nearly completed the grim task of sifting through the wreckage of the worst rail disaster in Soft ground almost buried the first locomotive and the other cars tumbled onto their sides. 88 passengers were aboard, 35 suffered minor injuries. Area residents were evacuated as chemicals from the derailed train burned out of control. Before we get into this, uh, as usual, spoiler alerts. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to completely spoil this movie, although we do not recommend that you actually go watch it. Or maybe we do. I don't know. If someone uh, sends me an alert that we spoiled this movie for them, uh, I would also <laughs> like to receive a Venmo dollar yeah, exactly. in, in appreciation. So yeah, we open up on these this montage of trains. Uh, we have this very interesting scene of a train, uh, train tracks and a school bus stalls. I really don't know if that ever actually happens where cars can stall while they're moving. What's wrong, Harry? Uh, I think it's flooded. It's school bus full of kids. It stalls, and then they have to get the kids quickly off the bus, right? And then all of a sudden, a CGI train comes by, and it just happens to miss. So I guess that's really where we started. That's it, this is this is what this movie's about is peril. Yeah, and but the weird thing is, it had no, this had nothing to do with the movie at all. This was just a random little vignette, and I feel like throughout this movie, they just throw in these little weird random side stories that have nothing to do with the central plot don't advance the story at all they just throw it in there because they need to fill time basically yeah yeah i mean i think it's clear this is was you know we should say this was a two-part miniseries right so two two hour things and i think they maybe had like about a 45 minute movie in here you know it's also like i feel like there's so many of these scenes that you could have just cut from other movies like straight out and that's basically how they feel anyways Mm mm-hmm they're not connected to anything else. The ca- the characters aren't tied in, you know. The idea of, like, opening it on uh, sort of a foreboding, you know, foreshadowing. Like, okay, that makes sense. 
But uh, why not just why not have that be the reason that the train brakes go out, go out or something? Sure, right. In, like, any number of yeah, exactly because they had to they tried to slow down because they were going to hit this school bus and that caused yeah. something to happen and then someone didn't check the safety of it afterwards. That would have been nice. And it's almost as like the directors received a like an introductory starter kit of here's how you do a disaster movie with a train. You have to have a scene where there's a school bus full of kids and it stalls on the tracks because that's what happens all the time. And then they just uh, kind of had to go through the motions, it seems like. And you could have, I mean, you also could have <laughs> just put that, the part with the school bus. Later on. Later right? on when the brakes were now not working. That would be the time to put that scene in there. It's not just about the trains and it's not just about the peril. We really have to have characters, right? We have to have it's people about the pe- we care It's about, about people, too. It's about people. And that's what we have. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing about this movie, you know, two million people may have died, but Rob Lowe's family was saved. Right. So That's what, that's what matters. Yeah. Uh, so we meet Rob Lowe's family. His character is uh, John Seeger, who is a National Transportation Safety Board train inspector. I guess he's supposed to inspect when trains uh, crash, but now he's going to get involved in stopping a crash. His wife is played by Kristen Davis, and her character is Megan. We meet them. They're eating breakfast and lamenting about the fact that their daughter, Grace, is growing up too quickly. She's going out with an older boy. Rob Lowe doesn't really they're, like they're that going, too much. They're going steady. It seems like it. Um, but this this movie, not only is the, the plot a little bit weird, but the family dynamic is very complicated in this movie. I had to watch this <laughs> initial scene a few times. This is probably why it took me so long to watch it. I guess the way it works is Kristen Davis and Rob Lowe, uh, they were both previously married. And they had kids with their previous uh, spouse. So they have a son uh, whose name is Chance, who is Kristen Davis's son from a prior marriage. I don't really understand why you have a character named Chance. Um, I don't know if that's a very popular name. Uh, it sounds a lot like a Monopoly board piece. I don't know why. Maybe maybe the backup plan was Community Chest for the name. Uh, he kind of looks, the kid looks a little bit and acts like Jake Lloyd from uh, yes. the, the, the Star oh, Wars prequel. Absolutely, yeah. He is the son of Kristen Davis and. This other cop character we meet called Mac, who's played by uh, Isai Morales. And then there's a daughter, Grace, who is the daughter of Rob Lowe and some unknown person. Uh, and she's really mean to her stepmom. She doesn't like Kristen Davis too much. So that's how we mm-hmm. get started here. It's really complicated to figure this out, but it's important because it's the backbone of the story, right? All right, so then we got another story that we have to follow here. We have this uh, husband and wife who have... Uh, the wife is pregnant. They just found out what the sex of the baby is going to be. And I guess this cop is fairly new to the force. He's played by Eric King, who I know, Elliot, you're a big fan of Dexter. He plays uh, one of the cops early on in Dexter that's chasing down Dexter. We follow him a little bit later on. There are a lot of characters and different storylines to track in this movie. All right, so so that's kind of the family setting. Uh, but the other big character in this movie is the train, the atomic train. Yes. And I think there that starts in Stillwater, Utah, uh, where there's a very dangerous box being loaded onto the train. Uh, we know it's dangerous because the box is labeled zirconium. Um, there's scary music playing at the same time, and the box is labeled dangerous. The triple threat. Right, yeah. Not to derail the plot, but Tim, I think you want to talk a little bit about uh, zirconium? <laughs> uh, a little bit. We see the train is leaking at this point. I don't really. I thought maybe it was the box that was leaking when I first saw it, but it turns out it's the train brakes. It's or, the air brakes, right? The air brakes. Which I don't know why the air brakes are leaking pneumatic fluid is a little confusing right uh, very unclear um but the zirconium i think is was just a little bit interesting i don't think they really planned this uh to be a part of it they probably just thought this was a cool word 
Um, but zirconium is, has a lot of different industrial uses, one of which is it's used in nuclear power reactors as a casing for the fuel rods. So you have the uranium pellets. Those are the things that are constantly undergoing uh, fission, and they release energy and at a very steady pace. You know, when a nuclear bomb goes off, you try to get as many of those things to go happen at the exact same time very, or, you know, very quickly. That's when a bomb happens. If you slow that to a steady pace, it releases enough energy in the form of heat, and then you can use that to do any number of things like uh, produce steam to generate a turbine. That's how a nuclear reactor works. Zirconium will hold those fuel rods, and it, they do it because it's highly resistant to heat, and it doesn't absorb neutrons, which means neutrons can flow right through the zirconium and hit another uh, piece of uranium or uranium element. So that's really how it, like, it, it works pretty well. When it's in a powder form, it's very flammable, but it's not too dangerous when it's in its you know standard metal form. I don't really know why they put zirconium in here. If they were saying zirconium itself was dangerous because it was related to nuclear stuff, but random thing I thought that was, was fascinating. It's also used in other places such as drill bits, flash bulbs. You even heard of zircon, which is like a gemstone. Yeah, yeah, uh, zircon's a mineral, uh, which is also not dangerous, but... So we go, there's like this quick cut, and there's a lot of weird cuts in this movie, I feel like. It's yeah. jumping back, each scene is like 30 seconds long, and you're just jumping around, so... Just imagine there was a commercial for Arby's in between. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we, there's this quick thing where we go back to the family, where um, the coach, Mac, is um, coaching his son's basketball game. That's the co- the dad cop, whose son is now part of this other family. The ex-husband of Kristen Davis. Yeah, yeah, and I guess he like pulls him out of a basketball game, because he, he's just sucking or something. He's not taking it shot right? yeah yeah but here's where i get super critical about that because he takes him out during the play it's like it was a soccer game where you're like or a hockey game where while the action's taking place and you'd have someone just get off the ice he just takes him out he doesn't call timeout or anything that's where i checked out of the movie was yeah, right that's, here that's bad if we haven't even gotten to the nuclear party and you're getting super critical we know we're in for a rough ride um, we have trouble keeping this on track yeah <laughs> Um, but, uh, so, but then we go back to this train yard and so there's the zirconium on the train, but then we see these, like, uh, these guys, shadowy guys talking about how, uh, they want to take a, a box off the train manifest because it's expensive Russian caviar. Okay. This serial number, take it off the manifest. Okay. Why? Because this isn't here. What's, uh, what's happening here? We're simply taking a very expensive crate of Russian caviar and slipping it into our regular cargo. And how would one normally ship caviar? All by itself. Heavily, expensively insured. Is your dad up to speed on this? Hey, get over it, Chuck. Dad's in Europe. Hey, I'm driving to Denver to take delivery, then I transfer it to the end user. The end user? Christmas bonuses will reflect the wisdom of this decision. The older guy, he's he's railroaded into committing an illegal act. There, I, Tim, I, I wasn't, and, and Elliot, I, I wasn't really following this, but I guess there, they needed to get, there's this company that like disposes of old nuclear weapons, and they need to somehow transport a nuclear warhead to, or bomb to, uh, Denver, but they didn't go through official channels and they kind of snuck it onto this train. So they, they take a really long time in the movie to get to this point where we find out that this is a nuclear bomb. There are a lot of these little hints like, oh, it's Russian caviar or, uh, it's, 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 it'll be fine, but you know, maybe don't stand too close to it, that kind of stuff. But I guess what the story is, is that there's this company, a contractor, Bradshaw Waste Management or something along those lines. And they have the contract 
with somebody, maybe the U.S. government, to dismantle, decommission, handle old Russian nuclear weapons. Because, you know, the Cold War has ended, um, you know, earlier in the decade. This is a 1999 movie, so it seems a little bit weird to have this storyline happening now. But at the end of the Cold War, the Russians had all of these, you know, nuclear weapons all around their former states as part of the Soviet Union. You had places like Ukraine, Kazakhstan, who overnight became nuclear powers as part of these new sovereign nations. And uh, the weapons were largely abandoned because there was no longer someone paying the military their salaries. And the United States went through with a bunch of other countries and they worked with the Russian Federation to do things which are called cooperative threat reduction. They got together, they paid money to move those nukes to another location. You know, key point here is within Russia. Uh, We built trains for them, like train cars that were specially designed to hold nuclear weapons. We gave them these Kevlar jackets to put them around the warheads themselves so that if they were jostled or if they got shot at, they wouldn't explode. So all this stuff happened. But supposedly in this universe, Russian nuclear weapons are somehow moved from their location in Russia in 1999 and shipped to somewhere in Utah and then put on a train to go somewhere in Denver to do something else. So I don't really know what's happening here, but supposedly they have the contract to disarm and dismantle these weapons, and they're live. They're still armed when they right. land in Utah. And maybe we'll get into this later, but I, I just does this make any sense at all to you? Because to me, this was not explained at all. Why is there a nuclear Russian nuclear weapon in the United States? Is this complete nonsense, basically? It's it's complete and total nonsense. I could not track what was happening. Uh, in the storyline at all. And I don't know if we're doing enough justice as to how unexplained to the viewer this is. Like you said, it's sort of slowly unspooled, but not in a, like, way. It's like, if you're going to have a a nuclear weapon that they're stealing from the government or sending to a third-world dictator or somebody that's embargoed or whatever, like, that's... I think you as the viewer can get your mind around that pretty quickly. This is a very complicated, you know, motivation here. Right. We really don't know what the decommissioning is. And then it's also not entirely clear why it's not supposed to be on the manifest. I guess it's that they don't want to insure it. Is that the thing? It seems like that's what it is. They they know this guy. So we, we know, you know, whatever is it, Bradley Disposal, Brad Bradford, Bradshaw, Bradshaw. Disposal, something or other, whatever this disposal company is, it's owned by a guy and his lazy conniving son who knows a bad guy because he has a, a goatee on. <laughs> yes, naturally. And he he's, yes, he's got a bad guy business suit, you know, mm-hmm. like a very uncool shoulder paddy, 1999. Exactly. So yeah, you know definitely he's a bad the villain. Guy. Yep. He says he wants to put this on this cargo train, not a military train, which is normally how they'd be escorted, uh, or in trucks in the United States is mostly how we would move our own weapons around. He just says it would cost too much money to insure it. There have to be security detail. So he just maybe took the bomb, put it in his truck, drove it to the train station, switched out something else and put a new label on it so that he could avoid it. And I think the plan was to get to Denver and he would drive to Denver and pick it up and then take it somewhere else. Like someone else was going to do something with this. It wasn't just going to end in Denver. I don't know. Yeah, they were going to take it apart, I guess, or what, you know, they're going to decommission it, quote unquote. Uh, I mean, I will say, I think if you're if you're that guy's insurance company, you're feeling pretty good about the fact that you weren't brought into it. Because, man, well, you would have been on Ooh. a hook for a payout. Oh, boy. That would have been a big one. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this atomic train, uh, or more boring sounding um, train 642, um, 
ends up uh it departs the station and there's this conductor uh wally who's like this old hand you know clearly grizzled veteran yeah yeah. not his first rodeo and then this rookie stan who's like bright-eyed and there's like this is like this funny scene where some kids are throwing rocks at the train and the young guy stands like oh he's like startled by it and the like wally's all cool he's like relax rookie like there were the everyone relax rookie we're a big target yeah, a few years ago, that was me. Yeah, and it was me before you. You know, that old trope where kids throw rocks at a train. If I haven't had rocks thrown at me before breakfast, I know it's going to be a rough day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Train's going, and as you might expect, things actually go awry. There's some sort of uh, explosion that happens um, that causes the train to lose air pressure, and surprise, surprise, it loses its brakes. Damn! We're losing our brakes! And the train tells Denver Control that they're um, this this control center in Denver that they're out of control. So basically, the train is now without its brakes, and the implication is that it's all downhill to Denver, and there's no way to stop the train, and the train's gonna like get to Denver. And ignoring the fact that in between where they are and Denver is the Continental Divide, which is like one of the tallest mountain ranges in the United States. Right. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. If you, if you lose your brakes in theory, you should go West because the con everything West of the continent divide goes West. Everything East goes East, (laughs) but forget about that. So this, all this is happening, this train malfunction that the brakes are out, but fortunately Rob Lowe and Chance, they're doing a little bit of family bonding. Take some rock climbing, which is like the Colorado. That that's what you do to bond with your son in Colorado, rock climb. Apparently, he gets a little uh, pager, right? So, you, you know, the movie's a little dated because he gets a pager that says uh, there's there's a big train incident. You need to get to the station or there's something going on. So he gets in a helicopter, which just happens to be nearby because there's a park ranger that he asks, hey, I'm a train inspector. Can you <laughs> stop your job and use a bunch of fuel to fly me around and, right, right. and show me some things? They're like, yeah, sure, that's no problem. You definitely have the authority to do that. As Another person inspector. not really... Caring about the insurance implications Absolutely. of their job. Uh, well, we find out later on that, that Mac was supposed to be, he was formerly a helicopter pilot, and he stopped because his wife saw the insurance bills. So some people care about insurance costs, but apparently... Somebody, somebody got really burned with an insurance bill. And, you, wrote, you know, like, this movie. Wrote this movie. <laughs> uh, so Rob Lowe gets in a helicopter, and he's, he's traveling above the train and he hears all these reports oh the train's filled with these toxic chemicals it's 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 pretty bad uh, probably at this point he, re- he regrets taking chance with him on the helicopter ride but what does he do gabe he, he kind of jumps into action here this is like really the only heroic thing that this character does uh, in the entire movie is they uh they lower him down on a ladder that's hanging off the helicopter, and the helicopter like matches the speed of the train, and Rob Lowe climbs down this ladder. I mean, it sounds and it looks kind of her- heroic, I guess, but it- it's not really that intense, right? It- I- maybe maybe I'm uh, jaded because I've seen all these incredible action movies that get crazier and crazier. But like the TV cameras are on him, and everyone's like, "Oh, he's such a hero for climbing down this ladder onto this train." Well, he's afraid of heights. Well, and that's yeah. why he does mountain climbing. Right, right, yeah, right. So like, uh, but nobody, know, nobody watching the TV knows that. And <laughs> he gets on the train, and then he's just like useless. Like, there's no, he has no expertise. He's an accident investigator, right. so he has like nothing to contribute or add to these people actually operating the train. 
And, like, importantly, like, there's, like, at least six people, I think, already on the train. Like, crew members. Experienced crew members. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know what he thinks he's going to add to. It's not like he's a mechanic or, I mean... it's not a ridiculous idea that he would have some sort of special knowledge as a you know accident investigator. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he knows what can go wrong, so he can prevent it or whatever. But he never it it is not clear to me that he's ever been on a freight train before. <laughs> at yeah. every at every point, he has he to be told confused. what to do. Exactly. Like, how, how do you work uh, uh, the connectors? He's just an errand boy once he gets on there. Pretty much. This is Denver Control. Repeat. I say repeat. Eastbound freight 642 of Stillwater, Utah. I'm 300 miles out of Denver. I'm picking up speed. My brakes are gone and my dynamics will not hold. I have flammable chemicals and hazardous materials on board. I am out of control. We cut to this other group of people that are at basically directing all the trains in the area to make sure they don't run into each other. They all act like a train losing its brakes is the first time that's ever happened before. Right, right. They have no ideas on what to do. Like someone throws out an idea of having another train go behind it, connect to it, and use its brakes to slow down the other one. And someone said, I don't know, is that sound a good idea? I don't know. Do you have another idea? Singer, what do you suggest? Well, if you had something, we could try to catch or hook on, try to stop the damn thing. Unless you've got a better idea. Like you said... You've got a better idea. It's like, they're, like, they're just winging there's no, this. There's no manual for this, Tim. We're off the manual. Oh, boy. I also think, though, uh, so we've kind of skipped over the point where, because Chance, you kind of get the sense that Chance doesn't really have a lot of respect for Rob Lowe. Mm-hmm. Like, he's You're not, correctly yeah. assessed that Rob Lowe is just kind of a chump. You know, like, he just doesn't have a lot to contribute in general, probably in life. Uh, but at this moment, he's getting down the ladder. He jumps on the plane. You, suddenly, you see in Chance's eyes, mm. earning a little respect there with the stepson. Because all he knows about train conductors is probably what he got from like Thomas the Train Engine. Yeah, show right. Up. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, my my dad actually is a hero. Well, so so going back to this train control. So there's this um, there's this one scene where up until now they're not really sure what's on the train, which is a little bit strange. They should know what the package is, but they get an anonymous call mm-hmm. from one of the two guys who were the sketchy, shadowy guys that were uh, loading the nuclear bomb on the guy without the goatee. Yeah, exactly. And he he tells them, "I work for a company called Bradshaw Disposal Systems. That train on TV, it's carrying a nuclear weapon in one of the boxcars." Look, Mr. Whoever you are... Listen to me. The boxcar labeled flammable chemicals contains... A Russian-made nuclear weapon. And then everything escalates. And that's where uh, we get looped into the White House. There's the the president, who's played by Edward Herman, of course, who's in a lot of 90s stuff. Yeah, the dad in Richie Rich, the grandfather in Gilmore Girls. Very, very um, calming present. Yeah, exactly. Uh, authoritative, like almost like a Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, they're talking about how they should respond to this. They're talking about potentially bringing in uh, F-16 jets to shoot at the train, but the president wants to see what happens, let it go. Uh, meanwhile, they, at the train control center, they're thinking about ways to fix it. I guess the one plan is they're going to go up behind it with another train and couple onto it and slow it down. But actually, th- it sounds kind of ridiculous, but Elliot, you found out that this was might be based in some sort of reality? Yeah, so it turns out that there was... Uh, so this was 1999. There was a case in 2001 uh, where 
a train in Ohio uh, essentially accidentally left the train yard with uh, sort of like the throttle engaged and nobody on board the train. And it was carrying chemicals and uh, was, was this, sorry. Was this an atomic train? <laughs> this was not an atomic okay, train. Okay, not an atomic train. Just want to make sure I got. But that the there. chemical trains are the things to worry about as well. I think that seems to be the uh, recurring thing. So, so they were afraid of like basically no brakes are engaged. The thing's going to derail uh, once the speed gets high enough, and it's going through population centers. What they ended up doing is they did something very similar to what was attempted unsuccessfully in atomic train, which was go up with another locomotive behind, couple on. And then use that locomotive's brakes to slow down the train. And it worked. It did work in, in that case in real life. So it's a solid idea. Now, it didn't work in atomic train because do this thing, in this, these coupling things, it kind of looks like if you take your two hands and you kind of grasp them together, that's, that's how the two train cars are connected. And, and essentially, it's, it's trying to make the handshake. It's trying to make the connection. And it's super finicky. It like just keeps not engaging. And they, there's some comment here that's like, uh, you know, you have to hit it just right, which I, I don't <laughs> actually probably believe is true. The thing like they're pretty standard and is meant to snap in pretty quickly. Yeah, like you think about a train yard, it's like just these things kind of being jammed into each other and clicking together. Like it's not a particularly delicate operation. This one they have at the very end of the train is very finicky. That's why it's delicate. on the caboose. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so like that doesn't work. It's almost like everything they try. It's like this comedy of errors, almost mm-hmm. it, over and over again. It's kind of weird. But at the same time, I guess they activate the uh, the nuclear uh, emergency search team. Get me somebody at the nuclear emergency search team. People, until Nest okay's it, derailment is not an option. Because they, now it's a nuclear issue. So they're worried at first. Like, is this real? Could this could be just a hoax? Uh, we were introduced to a character whose name is... Lieutenant Colonel Tom Levy, Nuclear Emergency Search Team. Oh, great. Uh, which I, I found, in, initially, this character seems very, very nice guy and everything, but it, it annoyed me because he's in uniform. Uh, he appears to be some sort of army official. This is a little bit interesting and hilarious to me because Nest members uh, are not military. Uh, you may see them a lot in movies, uh, the people that come in to disarm a nuclear bomb, but really what they are is... They're a group of scientists, they're engineers, they're technical experts that work largely through the Department of Energy, the NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Administration. And what these people do is they have jobs elsewhere. They have primary day jobs where they do various things relating to the nuclear enterprise, but they have volunteered to be rapidly deployed in the case of an emergency. So whether or not there is uh, nuclear material being somewhere and they're trying to figure out where it came from. If there's a nuclear bomb that, say, say a terrorist has in New York City, you know, they'll be flying helicopters with radiation detection equipment. They'll be trying to identify what type of material is it, what's, and they'll provide information to local law enforcement about wind patterns for fallout potential. They do all of those things. The military provides lift capacity for them, but NEST members themselves are are non-military. In the movie, the guy who shows up, he's wearing full fatigues and stuff, right? Right. And there are versions of people uh, in the military that do bomb disarmament work. But those are separate than NEST. There are people on NEST trained to do that work. But really, the people who will really do that work are people that are part of explosive ordnance disposal teams or EOD technicians. These all people all have to go through largely the same school. It's very intensive. Uh, it's at the Naval School of Explosive Ordnance Disposal down in Florida. It's a 42-week course. They learn everything from the basics on how to do bomb disposal work. And then if, they, if they're really good, you get special badges for nuclear, biological, chemical weapons. If this was going to happen in real life, the FBI would be running the full law enforcement angle. They would be working with NEST to figure out exactly what the technical specs are. 
but the bomb disposal, which we see later on in the movie, would be done through an EOD team. So it's a combination of this. They kind of collapse all that in together with this nest team run by a military guy. Um, normally, it would be the Army's 52nd Ordnance Group or to be able to what's called render the device safe. So anyways, I thought it was interesting they decided to make that person a military guy. Right. Seems a little bit more authoritative or anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it seems official, I guess. Right. Um, so Rob Lowe, who landed on this chase train that they're trying to connect, um, finally they do get the train connected. Rob Lowe is able to get on the atomic train, and they try to slow down the train with the train in behind, but I guess it's too much for the brakes, and the coupler ends up failing, and so that plan goes awry. But Rob Lowe now is on the, the atomic train, and they send him into the boxcar to go search for the weapon so he because mm-hmm. now he's apparently a, an expert on nuclear weapons uh in addition to his job as a rock climber uh cool dad and uh, ntsb investigator he just proven himself to be a cool customer that you can rely on to open a box right right uh well and with respect to boxcar yeah so this is not really that important at all to be fair um i'm glad you saw this on here i was thinking about taking it out but this is the way my brain works when i watch these things so everybody knows about the enola gay right we the airplane that flew the a bomb that was dropped on uh, hiroshima uh, we we it's over here by the air and space museum out in uh in near dulles airport here in, in washington dc area uh, but the B-29 that flew the atomic bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was actually called Boxcar. Not the same word. It was named after the captain of the plane, uh, Frederick Box. So it's B-O-C-K-S-C-A-R. Anyways, be given the context of this movie with a bomb in a boxcar, I thought that was kind of interesting. So all while this is happening, I think it's important to know that we keep jumping back and forth between what's ever happening on the train and then what's happening in Denver. Kristen Davis was told by her son, Chance, who was told by Rob Lowe, hey, go get all the camping gear and go camp out in the woods with your mother because something's going to happen, right? So everyone's worried about that. Rob Lowe doesn't tell anybody else. He doesn't tell the news. He doesn't tell you know anyone of importance. He just tells his family. So he wants to keep this information secret. And like I don't think he says go out in the woods, but make sure you avoid the train tracks, mm-hmm. right? Like importantly, it's not like this thing is targeted at Denver. I mean, go the other way, right? Yeah, it's not enough to just say go out in the woods. Yeah, right, because they could go towards the tracks right. where they right. are. But they're not the only ones in Denver who know about this now. I think the whole city now knows that there's a nuclear weapon, and the train may also be carrying a nuclear bomb. Oh we repeat, God. in addition to its already deadly cargo He's trying to stop it. materials, the train may be carrying a nuclear bomb. KNFS is attempting to get confirmation of this unsubstantiated report. Looting and panic starts, and it becomes this almost comical scene of just chaos in the whole city. And I mean, I'll say, I actually think that this was like my favorite part of the movie yeah, once the looting kind of happens. They they may not have done the research on the nuclear side of things, but like they got Denver down because <laughs> they're looting. And I swear to God, there's like three kayaks in the street <laughs> from like an outdoor store, and like one of the guys doing the looting is wearing like a sheep's wool like coat. <laughs> and there's like another scene where they're like in the alley, and there's what would normally I think just be like you know urban dwellers or whatever, and it's like basically Eddie Vedder. It's like he's you know long hair and wearing plaid and everything. <laughs> So, yeah, they nailed it, guys. That's well done. That's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, I, I love it, too, when they find out that the, there's a bomb on the train. Wally, the, the grizzled conductor, has, I think, the only funny line in the entire movie. Because um, there are lots of jokes that don't really land that well. But my favorite one is when he just starts saying, A bomb? Who the hell put a nuclear bomb on my train? 
this, yeah, think that that's a little that's kind of funny. That's that's like the tagline for this whole thing. That should be the yeah, movie poster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so back in Denver too, while Megan Roblo's character's wife is trying to find the family, round up the family, Mac, the the other dad, he like commandeers a police helicopter to go hunting for his family. There so, are so many helicopters in this movie. They, whoever loved it, whoever had the insurance issue, it was probably a helicopter insurance issue <laughs> because there's a lot of helicopters. There'll be more helicopters later, I promise. So he like commandeers police equipment to go like do a personal mission while all these people are looting Denver. This is one of my things I hate in, in movies. Like I, I bring this up, I think, before in other podcast episodes, but... The movie San Andreas. Have any of you guys seen that movie? No. Are you going to make me watch that movie next? (laughs) (laughs) That'll be for my other podcast of complaining about helicopter scenes. But The Rock is like a helicopter rescue team, like an elite group of former military helicopter uh, rescue pilots. And when their giant earthquake that breaks up part of Southern California happens, he just takes the helicopter that he's supposed to be saving people with. To go to San Francisco or somewhere to save his family. <laughs> For his own family. Oh, my God. And then, okay, I, that's the moral of the story. I'm supposed to follow and like this guy. Mac does the exact same thing in his movie. He just, he takes the helicopter, lands it next to a, where Kristen Davis is there with her, with their family and says, I'm going to take chance now and get him out of town. Uh, are you guys coming with me? And just ignores that there's other people in this story, like the daughter and all that stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like are our heroes. in a lot of these disaster movies, they do dial it in and focus on, uh, you know, one family or some individuals, so you, you understand some personal motivations. So, like, that makes sense, but they usually don't oppose the interests of the individuals right. with the greater good. It's right. just supposed to be the way that we kind of, you don't really, you can't really conceive of two million people, but, you know, everybody's should be on the same side here. But no, there's multiple points where they're actively, like, working against... Have you all heard of the save the cat moment in screenwriting where you have your character who you want the people who watch it to like that character? They have to save a cat out of a tree mm-hmm. or do something. Uh-huh. Uh, like one of the movies I remember called uh, Skyline. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of the movie, they're on an airplane and they're landing and there's a pregnant woman who can't get her bag out of the overhead storage and he gets it for her. And the other character turns and goes, you're a very nice man. It's like those scenes you need so you care about the characters later on when they're in peril. This movie's just filled with like kill the cat moments where <laughs> they put the cat up in a tree and say, Now you stay up there, cat. All constantly just making us hate our cat. And characters. basically Rob Lowe's like, Is that a cat up there? Do you have any ideas for how you know? He's yeah. just like waiting for directions for somebody to tell him to yeah. go climb up and the tree. Rob Lowe, aren't you an animal control specialist? <laughs> 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 so the other thing going on back in Denver, Rob Lowe's daughter, Grace, uh, her her lame boyfriend is there on their own during this chaos, and he somehow gets injured. I think this guy has no lines in this movie. He just gets injured over and over. Well, they decide, oh, there's traffic. I'm going to take my Jeep Cherokee or whatever he had and like drive through uh, sidewalks and run, almost runs over people. And then he gets his comeuppance and, like, drives into a trash compactor. Yeah. And or a trash dump or something. And he's injured and he's now useless, so they have to go rescue him. This will be a recurring theme for the rest of the thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I guess now we know a little bit more about the bomb, because uh, Roblo has been in the boxcar. And so they talk about a little bit of, of what the bomb is, right? So what they're worried about is that maybe... You know, if it's a U.S. bomb, if this will happen to be what it is, you just blow the you blow up the train or you derail the train and everything's going to be fine. You know, you have to deal with all the chemical waste and stuff, but the bomb's not going to accidentally go off. But what they're worried about is whether or not the Russian bomb 
is meets up to the standards that the U.S., uh, in terms of safety, their weapons had. Okay. The nuclear consequences. Savella. Sir, probably none. Probably. If there are nuclear weapons on board, they shouldn't detonate in the event of a collision. Shouldn't. Probably. Well, you wouldn't want to commit yourself so far on this one. Well, if it was ours, I could guarantee it. The problem is, this particular weapon may be Russian in origin. We don't know what design. It throws a huge X factor into the equation. You are not reassuring me. You know, the way a nuclear bomb works is that there's fissile material. What they're worried about is the, con the conventional explosives that are usually, if it's a, an implosion bomb, there's a sphere of uh, fissile material, say plutonium, and you have a, basically a perfectly designed sphere of explosives. These are just regular like TNT type explosives around that, and they all go off at the exact same time in a very uniform pattern to compress the fissile material from an uncritical sphere to a supercritical compact state. So that's what they're worried is the conventional explosive will get caught in the fire or when it's tipped over or anything, and then that will set off the chain reaction. U.S. weapons are very uh, safely designed. At a certain point during the Cold War, they were designed to be insensitive explosives. They have to be set off in a very particular way. The concern was that the Russians never really figured that out, how to use those until way later. Uh, to develop that type of conventional ex explosive. So I think that's what the concern is here. So that's why they don't do what you would imagine, you know, just to derail the train, you know, have some attack jets knock it out, knock it out of the, the tracks. To set the stakes, so they make a comment. So basically that's the dilemma that they're at right now, right? They've kind of tried the non-destructive methods of, you know, try to break it, get mm -hmm. the brakes working. They do some sand piles. All the non-destructive stuff fails. So now they've, it's like, we either run out the clock and, you know, maybe we'll be able to get the brakes to work or something. But now we're so close to Denver that we're increasingly risky. Should we just go ahead and blow the train off the track? Right. Even if, even if it sets it off, right, uh -huh. you still would rather have that happen further away right? Than, than the city itself. Right. And there's a comment made that, like, oh, if, if this thing goes off, it's going to poison the water supply of, like, half the country. Mm -hmm. Is there any validity to that? Like, what would the fallout be if this thing did just go off in the Rockies somewhere? I mean, there would certainly be fallout, and it would be uh, quite a disaster. It's a hard decision for the president to make. You know, do you compare uh, a bomb going off and potentially disrupting a water supply for a, a period of time, however long that happens to be, or having to go off near an actual city, and then you still have fallout and all of those things, but maybe just blowing the other way instead of the water supply. I don't really know. Nobody would be drinking Coors beer for a while, that's for sure. Yeah, well, that would be a shame. It, it is a little weird, though. You'd think, would, do you think there's at least a sense of, just from a targeting perspective, even if you're going to use, you know, use mm -hmm. a nuclear weapon intentionally, you, you'd think there'd be a targeting perspective of, you know, what's the outcome if you do it to the water supply of a given area versus hit the population center, center itself? They would be making those decisions. Uh, that's one of the things that NEST would be helpful for, is to help guide that process. Uh, there would be all these advisors, because the president in this movie is just in this dark room. Again, don't know why these rooms need to be so dark. If you if it's dark, you cannot read the piece of papers on your, your desk. You would be guiding through that process, but they don't really seem to make those calculations. It's just a bunch of people yelling at each other. Like one person suggests something, and then someone in a military uniform yells. We should deploy some sort of commando unit, land on the train. And do what? If the engineers are incapable of stopping it short of derailment, what would commandos do? Or the military says, let's bomb this, and the president says, before we start firing rockets at civilians, we're going to give Mr. Seeger there a chance to stop that train. No, they don't really know what is the process here. It's just mostly just a lot of people yelling at each other. 
Okay, so while the, all this is going on, they're deliberating this. Um, there's a couple of last ditch plans to mm-hmm. save the train. I think at one point they put out like a sand trap to try to stop or derail or slow down the train. The train's going too fast; it goes through that. And then they get to this point where there's this uh, there's this like peak, this incline where they might be able to get the brakes working, and somehow they're able to get some braking going on the train, but. Lo and behold, there was that chase train from way back when. That guy decides he's going to be a hero and like catch up to the train and didn't, doesn't realize they're trying to break. And he crashes into them and pushes them right over that, like the last chance to stop the train before it goes to Denver. There are a lot of people that try hard to save other people in this movie and just fail. Considering that like it's there was no... The communications are working just fine. The radios are working. And there's multiple times when people are just extremely uncoordinated. You know, like the sand trap will just come out of nowhere. And it's like, I feel like that would have been on your radar coming up, you know? Mm -hmm. So these things popping up. And the chase train is one of them. I do like, I wrote that this line down. They were like, the train's half a mile behind. It won't be able to catch up or whatever. And somebody tells the conductor of the chase car train... Don't be a hero. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, be a hero. Like, this is the exact, <laughs> like, what do you have to lose? Well, so I just, I, I like this. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this. I actually like this particular mishap because it shows you that you create all of these different safety protocols. You have plans in place for, you know, if this were to happen, you keep your radios on and therefore there won't be a miscommunication. The guy in the chase car turns down his radio because he says, no, I'm going to go save people on the train. They're going to jump from one train to the other. So he doesn't hear the fact that they're already slowed down and that they're safe because he has it all the way down. But why did he turn Why did he turn the radio down? Because they kept telling him to stop, to, to just like stop your train, don't follow. And he wanted to save people. Yeah, okay. He didn't know that they were going to be successful. You could just ignore it though, right? You could yeah. just like – True, yeah. but he didn't because that's – yeah, he, he flunked that day in train school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everyone in this movie is either super heroic, super smart, or really dumb. And we're now out of options. Train's going to Denver. And there's this point, uh, Miller, Miller Bend, mm-hmm. uh, Miller's Pass, where they're going to derail this train once and for all. It's like the last... The train was going to derail anyway. I think it was too fast of a curve. So they're going to do a controlled derail. Um, and sure enough, um, before this, uh, Rob Lowe and the conductor, they get off the train just in time. The rookie, uh, he he makes a last ditch effort to try to save the train, but just like dies. He like falls. It's almost co- it's so abrupt and comical. He slips and just dies and is crushed by the train. There are a lot of these moments where it's oh, we, you know what? Those are always we're probably right before commercial breaks, where you you need a character to die and you thought they'd be safe. But it doesn't really matter. It's not like anything happened. I think it'd be better if he was like trying to fix it, and some kid throws a rock and like hits him in the head. <laughs> he, like, I he, got you, rookie. He was just he was just about to connect the brakes together, and a rock hits him in the head. Oh, that would have been great. Or the school bus comes back. The school bus is on the tracks, and uh, yeah, all those callbacks would have been much better than what they did. Was essentially just they derailed they derailed the train, and uh, it explodes. But not completely. The bomb doesn't go off. There's just a bunch of barrels everywhere, and there's a little bit of fire, and it's mostly just a train wreck. And that's where we, we think maybe right around there was where this two-part miniseries ended, and people were able to go to sleep and probably talked about it at work right the next day around the water cooler. Hey, guys, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, how's my, how's my Pets.com stock doing? And by the way, did you see the... <laughs> is Rob Lowe going to stop the bomb? Is Mac ever going to be able to find his kids? Is that boyfriend okay? The train has derailed its cargo of flammable chemicals and a highly unstable nuclear weapon. 
Once again, all citizens of Denver are advised to evacuate as soon as possible. Kelly Marks, KNFS News. Will he earn his stepson's respect? That's the main question. Uh, So I did think it was interesting. So it does derail. Um, You know, I was looking into uh, these what these other train crashes. So this I think this really is kind of the nightmare scenario where you have a chemical fire. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, they do transport uh, nuclear waste on trains and they put them in these things called nuclear casks. And they're basically these big insulated containers. Right. They design them to survive a 30 minute fire at 14 75 degrees Fahrenheit, which is usually, you know, safe. But there was a a train accident in the Howard uh, Tunnel in Baltimore Hmm. in 2001, again, slightly after this movie. And it lasted for four to five days. And the maximum peak was 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a lot. So, yeah. So when you have these chemical fires, like it is actually pretty realistic that that it becomes an impossible to control situation. And you basically just have to let it uh, put itself out, I think, at that point. Yeah. So we, we're, we're in this world where uh, Rob Lowe uh, you know, he jumped off the train and he gets a ride to where the crash site is from a very, very generous guy in a truck. Yeah. You know, there, well, there's can you a, drive towards the nuclear bomb, please? Well, it was like a rail truck uh, that had Deus Ex Machina written on the oh, side of yeah. it. Uh, no, it, it was, yeah, I think it was like a rail truck from the railroad and they like speed him down there. But it was just perfect timing. Like, oh, you need a ride to the nuclear site. So, so he's there with, I think, probably the Nest team. It's kind of cl- unclear about who these people are. They might have said it at some point, but this movie is very long and exhausting. Um, so the, the, they're there, and there's this, we're introduced to this other character. Uh, his name is... This is Ruben Castillo. How can I help you? We've got a hell of a wreck. Fire burning at both ends. Aerial fire units are on their way in now. We need you to help us locate that bomb. You're the only one who's seen it. Do you mind putting on a containment suit and coming down the side with us? There's no problem. There's no reason why Rob Lowe should continue to be involved in this process at all. But I guess because he's the only one who's opened up the crate and knows what crate it is. He's put into like some sort of heat-resistant suit and is lowered into the train car. Can I just point out how unflattering those heat resistant suits were? It doesn't. It doesn't really show off. My Rob lord, Lowe's it's not features, a good. Yeah. It's not a good. I mean, even Rob Lowe, I, I guess, is a fit guy, but it's it's a bad look. It doesn't help. Probably no matter what you're wearing, to be lowered down like some sort of claw machine. They make a reference to that. Yeah. So he's like being dropped into the car where the bomb is. Well, so here's what I didn't get. So I think they actually lower Rob Lowe down into the train yeah. first, but then like he can't do anything, and then Ruben because it turns out he's not. He's not qualified. To right. Do surprise, surprise. But then Ruben Castillo just walks into it. So, like, why didn't they have to lower... Why didn't Rob Lowe just walk into it? It was I'm just, like, sure. pointless dra- dra- dramatization. So we know that there's zirconium, which is a dangerous material if it's in uh, powder form. And that's right what people were worried about at the beginning. That's why the box was labeled dangerous. But now we're introduced to this other material. What is it? Sodium metal, which in uh, shaving form is very dangerous. It can light, it's caused little sparks and explosions and things. Um, supposedly, this stuff is just everywhere, and it's leaking, which I don't know sure how a shavings or metal and stuff like this could leak, but it's leaking, and they need to be careful not to put water on it. You can put fire retardant powder, which is what everyone is dropping, because again, there's more helicopters in this movie dropping <laughs> things onto the fire, trying to keep it to a level where Rob Lowe or Ruben can work. But eventually, they have these two knuckleheads, these two enthusiastic knuckleheads. Uh, They don't listen to the radio reports. They just hear they want everybody in the area who has a helicopter. Supposedly, there's a lot of them. Everybody has a helicopter to get to work. And they're going to drop water from the local river 
and drop it down and they don't hear the warning don't drop water they drop water on it and then what happens it sets off like a bunch of conventional explosives yeah and then while ruben's working on it because he's apparently he says he can do it with his eyes closed and he almost got it but no but they, yeah these two kind of dumb helicopter pilots who also weren't listening to the radio or there was radio interference they dropped the water on huge explosion conventional explosion and then the nuclear bomb goes off so i thought i thought the um i don't know tim how you'd rate you've seen many more of these than i have in terms of the actual blast there's the um there's like the initial uh light burst it has a kind of a greenish hue and it happens during the daytime too it's important right exactly so it happens during the day there's like the flash of light this greenish hue and then comes the uh, shock wave, the pressure wave, and you see it in all the different parts where this movie is taking place. So uh, where uh, where Seeger's with his family, mm-hmm. um, he's been reunited. He got a, a helicopter ride, helicopter because <laughs> could because of course the new helicopter uh, yeah. ride back to be reunited with his family. Um, we see other parts of Denver, the train control center, and everyone gets inundated with this like pressure wave. Um, and then we see the mushroom cloud in the, it's weird cause it's in the mountains. Yeah. You see Denver skyline and then you see the, the mushroom cloud in the background far away and it's all of a sudden gotten dark. It's like nighttime right all of a sudden. So I don't know how you, how realistic you thought this portrayal was. So I like to do a rating system for each of these now, uh, cause we, I don't know why I just, I'd like to rate everything. Uh, I have a couple different scales. It's a one, two, three scale. We have fizzled out duds which are just the worst then with the top end of it we have thermonuclear accuracy like this is just perfect uh and then somewhere in the middle low yield attempt uh, this one i would say is a dud this is a, a fizzled dud because of the factors of and we'll get into this a little bit more when we do our nuke discussion but the idea of a mountain range blocking a ground burst nuclear attack but it still produces just the same amount of flash where no matter where people are standing because we see people inside the city, far away, like we, this group of people, the guy from Dexter, the cop, and his pregnant wife. We don't know. I don't know where they are, but they seem to be – they were escaping the city, right? They were going the other way. So they seem to be on the other side of the city. No matter where you are, whether it's there, it's at central control, everybody sees the exact same effect. But it's behind a mountain range. All of those things don't really make a lot of sense to me. The f- shockwave travels up and over a mountain and continues on like it would be like a tidal wave of water. All these combinations right. of stuff make make this don't – I do not understand yeah. what they're going no, for. No, and it's, it seems far away. I mean, Elliot, 20, you, were looking, miles, you, were, yeah, yeah. you were looking where you thought the, this would be based on the movie. I mean, yeah, I think we <clears> – <throat> my estimate just from looking at it, you know, on the horizon, the way it's portrayed. I mean, I said 20 miles – you looked on Google Maps. You looked about yeah. I think in Google Maps, the mount it, it happens in the mountains. So you get into the mountains a little bit. That's about twenty miles from Denver. So I mean, I do like. I will say. So there's a scene. There's this quick cut right after the mushroom cloud is shown, and you see this guy. I guess in like the control center or something. Um, and he is sort of it's bright white and he's sort of physically he's in a chair and he's blowing back Mm -hmm. that little thing for me i was like oh that is actually that feels like kind of scarily real i think he was close he was near they were at their like local bunker right yeah setup area yeah their their local command center i think that was right and but then then by the time they sort of showed it getting to denver at that point it was still it was like fireballs again you were watching literally orange fireballs coming into the city and it's like we're just, uh, we're just so. they've seen probably 
other movies. They've seen Terminator 2, and they're just yeah. applying that right. uh, on a TV movie budget. So the other the other important thing, too, is that uh, we're told that, that the bomb releases an electromagnetic pulse, or an EMP. Electromagnetic pulse. Oh, God have mercy. And this renders the entire city of Denver now can no longer communicate outside. So the president and all of his people, they can't talk to anyone in Denver. So nobody has any idea what's going on. And they say all these, any modern car that has electronics will now be rendered completely inoperable. So all these cars that they're, they're going around trying to start, they're just not able to. So it's only old classic cars and an old <laughs> motorcycle that Mac like commandeers and ends up basically stealing taking Rob Lowe's daughter and then his son and says, I'm taking the kids and evacuating to Kansas. But he's, he's doing it in such a cowardly way because he know he multiple times in this movie has asked to take his son, not Rob Lowe's kids or anyone else. He wants to take his son away. Why don't we split up? I'll take chance and you can uh, stay with Danny. I'll bring back help. You'll bring back help. Now we cut to the president in the control center, and they're realizing that it has just, you know, gone off, and there's a statement like, you know, mother of God, what have we done, or whatever. And then the president goes, and he starts asking, like, these really basic questions, like, he, it's like, what impact does the weather have on the fallout, and, like, is it going to seep into the groundwater and stuff? And it's, like, the type of questions that you would have hoped he would have been provided with the answers while he was making the decisions here, not only after the bomb goes off. Again, a portion of Denver has been completely decimated by a nuclear blast. Are there any casualty figures yet? Not yet. Satellites show massive destruction. What impact does their weather have on the radiation? Rain will drive the radiation deeper into the ground, causing a much more catastrophic environmental disaster. But above ground, I assume the radiation levels will be lessened. With the rain, those who evacuate within 24 hours could have a higher chance of survival, yes. All right, then. We've got to continue our efforts to do everything we can to get those people out of there. So I don't think the president's being advised very well because the first time we know a bomb went off was because somebody, like maybe a science advisor or maybe the national security advisor, some guy in a suit um, says EMP, electromagnetic pulse, uh, which again, if you've heard any of our episodes before in the past, when we did our episode about the movie Broken Arrow, we talked about electromagnetic pulses and how those are not something that really happens for underground explosions with nuclear weapons or even ground bursts. They happen only really with high-altitude tests because the way they work is they go off in the air, really high altitude, they produce gamma radiation that travels down, and when it, that particular effect is what creates the electromagnetic pulse. The EMP effects of a ground burst, nuclear explosion, are shorter distances than the fireball. So if your cell phone stops working, it's because you're, it's melted and you vaporized, <laughs> not because of an electromagnetic pulse. So. I don't know what – they just basically have decided to throw yeah. that in there, which is funny because we see Chance talking to his mother, and he mansplains that electromagnetic let pulse. Yeah. I want to know where this guy gets How's his this, information yeah. and uh, whether or not he just listens to the podcast perhaps. If only he was as good as, at basketball as he was <laughs> at EMP. Then. Exactly. Um, um, but there's also there's, there's discussions too about fallout, right? I don't think he's advised on that very well. Um, the government plan is to get everybody out of Denver within 24 hours because that's when fallout – is going to start to happen. And they want to evacuate them east to the Kansas-Colorado border, which, by the way, is about a two-and-a-half-hour drive, uh, and yet people in this movie are seen 
getting there in no time. So that's a little bizarre, including um, the cop who has the pregnant wife. He leads this group of people who are stranded in cars that have all shut down because of the MP. They like literally walk to Kansas within basically like an hour time frame in the movie in what should have been a 52-hour walk. So I have no idea how that happened. It's but, impressive. But the fallout itself is – there's a part where you actually see – you see what is supposed to be the fallout, right? They, they look up in the air and they see what looks like snow right. coming down. And then it's never discussed ever again in the movie. You literally see it start in one place and then never again. Uh, they say within 24 hours, but really there's multiple types of fallout. There's early fallout, which is near ground zero. That's the one they should worry about. That happens usually between 30 minutes and an hour is when that starts to fall. Because, you know, fallout is when material from the ground debris i guess in this case it would be uh trees and mountain dirt and all that kind of stuff when that gets caught up into the air and thrown up in the air it gets mixed with uh radioactive particles and it itself becomes radioactive usually it's very fine vaporized dust or it could be whatever other materials around that stuff comes down pretty quick because of gravity it doesn't take 24 hours the 24 hour one could be is what happens over very long distances so that's what travels very far um so really what they should be worrying about is early fallout so no 24-hour evacuation is going to get people anywhere well i mean that's a moot point anyway because we have to watch uh mac who's trying to be a hero on the motorcycle with these two kids and ends up crashing the bike in this like warehouse because he gets scared by an owl and yeah the rest of this movie is is anticlimactic and really pointless I do. I think we should. Uh, we we should. I mean, it, the rest of the movie, it's like it's completely not held together. And once you explode a nuclear bomb in the, in the movie and kill two million people, it's like kind of hard to care mm-hmm. about anything else. But I do think it's kind of interesting the the thing that they so they go to this gas station and this gas station's been taken over by like the Free People's Militia of Colorado mm-hmm. or something, and they're selling gas at. Twenty dollars a gallon, which, like, frankly, under the circumstances, seems pretty cheap to it's me. Not bad. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely pay twenty bucks a gallon for that gas. And then, um, there's, then there's a whole shootout. This is before the bomb goes. They get off, into like, like a pointless shootout, which is like one of like this is definitely woke on like gun, you know, Second Amendment stuff, and the fact that mm-hmm. all these like I, you know, particularly you see this in like Wyoming, Colorado, these these groups that. Uh, militia groups out there this is 100 percent what would happen they would just kind of go crazy in a survival situation like this it's one of many scenes where the family whether it's megan whether it's mac whether it's john just i want to say stick their nose where it shouldn't go they have people that they're trying to protect whether it's their family or it's other people and they get into these pointless unnecessary arguments with people megan at one point stops a fight between two people honking like road rage who knows what weapon that guy might have had any number of things she just yells at him into submission he backs down and she's like yeah right don't yeah, do that again yeah and she, he was like you got a real cool headley it was like, just like there was that bared no resemblance to what would have actually happened at all and mac did not need to yeah they needed gas but mac didn't need to get into a shootout with these people because <laughs> get gas, his, yeah. his family is right there and they got caught in the crossfire and all this multiple things keep happening here. His helicopter pilot gets shot at one point because he's tries to deal with a, there's a prison break and these prisoners yeah, have a hostage they take situation. A, yeah, exactly. There's so many of these scenes that are unnecessary, but yeah. okay, it's a TV disaster movie, I guess. But no, and this is the weird thing. In this movie, it seemed like every character was either had some character trait that was like to the max like Seeger's like super uh benevolent like wants to help his wife's like super peacemaker max like the the hot-headed guy the boyfriend just gets injured a lot it was just like all this kind of thing but 
But I, so, I mean, just to wrap up, I, so we said Mac got into the motorcycle accident. They summon um, Seeger to come help. He's been separated from his wife. His wife took the the boyfriend who got injured again <laughs> in the nuclear blast and is like in critical condition. She goes to this site in Kansas uh, on some school bus that picks them up. Uh, then Seeger somehow the Seeger's daughter who was thrown off the motorcycle finds him, brings him back to the brings him back to the warehouse. There's some climactic scene where. His son somehow gets stuck on a ladder trying to rescue. It's dangling from a ledge. Yeah. And Mac is on the ground, hurt on the ground, but so he can't help out. Um, Seeger's at, at the top, and they, like, both together do it. Like, the Mac throws up a rope, and they tie the knot that he learned. Uh, yeah, Chance learns how to tie a knot, a very particular knot when he's mountain climbing, which just shows that he's a better father than Mac. <laughs> That's crash on the motorcycle. Yeah, Mac, Mac's basketball skills don't help Chance survive. But then somehow Mac dies too. I can never figure that out. He falls in a hole when this happens. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure we're 100% sure what happens. But and and like this scene takes forever. Like I feel like we just oh, keep cutting back to him minutes. dangling there or whatever. And I'm just like I'm it's like are we meant to care about whether Chance lives or not after we just watched a nuclear explosion? You don't get to explode a bomb in a major American city mm. and then have me care about whether this kid falls off a, which by the way like he that's just a rickety old warehouse somewhere. He could have gone there on any day and got into a, a it's it's a tricky tricky scene and i always thought what was gonna happen was because he's dangling from this ladder and it's right on top of like where mac is i thought the ladder was gonna fall uh with chance and they're both gonna like fall through the ground together like it was gonna hit mac or the ladder was gonna fall and hit mac because maybe that's what ends up happening i couldn't tell the movie was yeah. very blurry when this was happening and i think like the whole reason that they do it is that they need to give the hero uh, like a redemption opportunity here. Um, mm. But again, it's like, you know, I think in the cosmic tally here, the fact that you totally screwed up the nuclear bomb right. <laughs> part of it, it we kind of don't care as much. What, what ends up eventually happening, right, is that Rob Lowe and the kids, they find Chris and Davis at the FEMA camp, like almost instantly as soon as they get there. Uh, the president gives a speech about how good humans are and inventing dangerous things. Um, maybe we'll get better at it. The bad guy, goatee guy, uh, he was in this group of people walking with the cop and the and the pregnant wife. He just he gets away apparently, but just feels bad about it because he sees the effect of. But he to me, he's the only one in this movie that has any like nuance to his character at all. Like he An starts, a, yeah, he has like some sort of. He started off as just this pure out for profit bad guy, and then actually seems very emotionally affected by his actions. To me, that was like that was the bright spot it's, of the it's movie. That was it. <laughs> It would have been really fascinating. I would watch a movie where it was from that person's perspective, and it's someone who realizes, "Oh, I messed up, but I don't want to get. I want to get away with it." And then it slowly evolves to see the consequence, of, and then maybe he turns himself in at the end. But I think at this point, he just probably gets on an airplane and goes to Fiji or something. But anyways, the family hugs it out. There's this scene at the end where they're all putting up a barn together, uh, or some sort of something. Yeah, no, it's like an Amish. Yeah, Amish like a barn raising. Yeah. Uh, and then we're supposed to forget about how selfish they've been over the last couple of hours trying to be out to save themselves, but not really caring anybody else. The end. Uh, <laughs> so your thing about saving a cat, I feel like the saving a cat is 
is you know, is the whole ladder scene is basically uh, the saving a cat. And if you had put that at the beginning, it would have worked as a saving the yeah, cat thing. Yeah, yeah. But like you, <laughs> they just reverse the order. But instead of saving the cat, most of what we see with all of our major characters is the putting the cat in peril, like putting the cat on into a tree that's also on fire. Like that's how we're supposed to meant to like introduce ourselves to the characters and care about them. But it's the exact opposite. So I, I thought that's a pretty bold move. All right, so let's get super critical here. No one is, is listening to this podcast for us to, to rant for an hour talking about how bad uh, train movies are. I've got some stuff to, to get off my chest. I know you guys have some, some concerns with some of the things you've seen in the movie. Let's first get into the train problem. Uh, we have two major problems. Gabe, uh, you identified one of these. Yeah. What, what's what's the what's the big one? We got we have we have a million year old geography problem. Right, the the, the continental divide problem. I mean. The, I believe the Continental Divide runs between Denver and Utah. For those unfamiliar, the Continental Divide is the point, kind of the peak uh, going east to west across the country. Anything that, if you dropped a drop of water immediately west of the Continental Divide, it would flow west. And if you dropped one east, it would flow east. So how can a train that loses its brakes somewhere between the Continental Divide and Utah, so west of the Continental Divide, how could that then continue going uphill for a number of you know miles and then go over the top and then go back down to Denver. It would have had to have had such a lead like downhill all the way from Stillwater, Utah, but that's not no, the case either. Right. It just doesn't it doesn't make any sense logically. If if the brakes were cut, the train would probably coast backward. But there's also a one hundred year old technology problem with the train stuff here. And this is I think this is really fascinating. Air brakes in the movie, they go out because they lose pneumatic pressure. Well, air brakes do not work like this in real life. There's a loss of air pressure. The brakes would be automatically applied. Like the default condition on air brakes are that they are on, that the train will not move. Right. It takes air pressure to make them be released. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. And this was designed – this is designed on purpose and actually pretty early in the late 1800s. Yeah, 1868. Uh, Yeah, so George Westinghouse, uh, who founded Westinghouse Electric Company, he was the one who invented the system so that – yeah, because I think there were a few train accidents prior to that where the brakes failed and they said, well, this is a much better way to do it Mm -hmm. to prevent horrible movies like this from ever being made. And and unfortunately, we just ignored that. Um, connection to, to history, but the interesting nuclear connection, as you mentioned, the Westinghouse Electric Company eventually becomes the elect- Westinghouse Electric Corporation. This developed into one of the largest U.S. nuclear energy companies and one of the largest exporters of nuclear power around the world. It was eventually purchased by Toshiba. Uh, it's had some problems recently. It declared bankruptcy in 2017. Again, it was resold, uh, but it was a big provider of, of nuclear technology to the U.S. Navy. It's interesting enough that it was later bought by CBS, the exact corporation of the, net, the TV network. All that stuff huh. in the 1990s it got, got bought out, and CBS had a bunch of disaster movies, but not this one. NBC got right. to it first. So maybe this is NBC's way of criticizing CBS for uh, being involved. So I think this whole plot, we talk, we, I think we got a really good theory about it being a helicopter pilot who was screwed over by his insurance company and his own radio. Right? Like all those things probably happened. Or it's an NBC executive poking fun at CBS for purchasing Westinghouse. So it's like, haha, your brakes don't work and there's nuclear problems. I think that's really what. Yeah, that's could be. like deep media criticism at that point. I think I just, I think we just figured it out, guys. I think I figured this out around hour like 15 of 20 while watching this movie. Um, that's, that's what I think, anyways. Gotcha. So 
All right, so so that's kind of the the nonsense I think with the train. Now, what about I mean the main event here, the the nuke stuff. I mean, I think there was an early tagline for this that said something like trains carry nuclear materials through America's backyards all the time. What if one day something went wrong? I mean, what's what's the deal with this whole premise here? So this is really really fascinating to me. Supposedly the plot originally was not just about a nuclear weapon because that's not enough, right? Your atomic train has to be a full scope atomic train, not just nuclear bomb being transported illegally, but they were also going to deal with nuclear waste on the train being transported legally, but there would be some sort of an accident, right? You mentioned the TV ad spot. Uh, that's how they promoted everything about it. But the nuclear energy lobby, when they saw these ads, they didn't like it so much, which is interesting because NBC had stock in some nuclear corporations as well. So everybody, CBS, NBC, they all had a hand in these in these types of industries, uh, they heard from people like the Nuclear Energy Institute, who issued a containment strategy for how to react to the film. They called it an aggressive effort to provide industry employees, state regulators, and elected officials with information they could answer questions about transportation safety. Here's how it really happens, right? They called for the, these references to nuclear waste to be removed from the movie. Sounds like they really went off the rails when they heard about this one. <laughs> Well, what they ended up doing was they pulled the brake, NBC pulled the trailer, uh, they added the disclaimer that we talked about earlier, they changed any dialogue in post-production that referred to uh, nuclear materials to hazardous materials, but they still left in the dumb nuclear bomb plot. So I guess they, they wanted that in there, that was, their, <laughs> that was what they were going to hold off on. Uh, in, anyways, I thought that was fascinating. The U.S. Uh, Energy Department had a spokesperson who said, there's no way this could ever happen. It's not feasible. With all due respect to Hollywood, it's a typical Hollywood movie. But the other side of the coin, the people who are anti-nuclear power, anti-nuclear weapons, they also seized on this movie as a rallying cry for their particular agenda. People like Senator Richard Byron of Nevada said that the original version had an important message, quote, there are 50 million people in 43 states living a mile or less from a nuclear shipment routes. I keep telling people, this is nuclear waste that would be laid at your doorstep. So both sides took this movie and kind of used it uh, for their own motives. Even though it wasn't very good, people still had a fight about whether or not it was accurate, uh, you know, years and years before we decided to have this podcast here today. But there are more nuclear points. I think that would be interesting. We talked a little bit about some of them, but I'll go through a few here. And I'd love to see what your guys' reactions to these are. After having to watch this movie to see if maybe there are these other points that might be um, of interest to you. So first, I, I find it fascinating that the very premise of this movie, the idea that there's a shipping company or a contractor that wants to save money on insurance rates by shipping a single nuclear bomb in an unmarked cargo box, is I think it's completely in total nonsense. One, disarmament and dismantlement of nuclear weapons that we helped with in the right after the Cold War was always done in Russia. It was never done in the United States. This was a clear requirement of the Russians. If you're going to help us, we're not going to let you just have more nuclear weapons. That doesn't make any sense, right? Like, no matter how friendly you are with your former adversary, you're not going to give them additional nuclear weapons. But we helped them build storage facilities and dismantlement facilities in Russia for this exact purpose. We didn't have to transport them even to the United States at all. It was always these tended to be military operations, right, with guards and military cargo planes. All this kind of stuff happened under military eye, not under the, the thumb of some son of a contractor 
weapons and warheads would already be disarmed when they were transported. They would remove the fuses. They would remove as much of the ex conventional explosions before they put them on trains. So the fissile material would still be a concern, but they, they would disarm them so they wouldn't necessarily go off like this. They were usually shipped in larger quantities than one for this very purpose. It's easier to protect a good number of them than just shipping them out one at a time, you know, economies of scale. Uh, there always were safeguards like remote sensors. They'd be put into a box and it would be sealed. Right. Like these things were in place to stop things like this. Well, from and I, I think I mean I think all that speaks to the fact that I mean isn't this highly regulated stuff? I mean this 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 dude from Bradshaw, he's basically transporting this around the back of his truck like he's moving like a CRT TV to his friend's house. Right. Um, I mean, isn't the whole point that we have a lot of regulations to prevent this kind of stuff from happening? Yep. These are all just ignored, and they would be. I mean, it's not like you can say the system that is in real life is perfect. But it's a lot better than taking this out of the trunk of their car. Um, I also don't understand why he didn't maybe just drive the truck the whole way. It's not that long of a drive. Like, why did he have to put it on a train? And it's like it's not. It's not just it. The movie kind of frames it as a, like a regulatory thing, and they didn't have the proper. They don't right. really like. Isn't the clear threat here that this is at this point an active nuclear weapon, and you know, you could easily get into the hands of a bad actor? That would be a big concern, right? I mean, these are one of those things. Is like, oh, it costs too much money to ship them. They're on a government contract. If the, if the, you go to the government and say, hey, I need help with my insurance rate because I think it's going to cost too much, they're going to say, oh, yeah, this is important. We're going to help you with this. Uh, I've never seen a government contractor not want to bill the government for any of these activities. Maybe they're billing the government, but he's keeping, he's pocketing the actual money. Maybe that could be part of it. But it's very, very, very unclear. How any of that kind of stuff happens. Beyond that, the basic premise of the safety of Russian nuclear weapons, I actually kind of find very accurate, but it's hard to judge because of how vague they are about what the actual bomb is. So when, when we see Seeger uh, open up the box and he tries to figure out kind of what it is, we see some imagery. So the bomb itself is it's in Cyrillic. It says has a couple different writings on there. I asked my friend Boris, who was on our episode that we recently did on the Hunt for Red October. So thanks, Boris, for translating this. The Russian characters read uh, "dangerous" on the bomb and "special munition," which is it's very helpful. Uh, there's this discussion that they have like the series number of six six seven. All right, I've got a crate with Russian characters on it. I can't read it. You want to open it up? All right. I don't I think that's pretty much made up but they just simply say it's an old bomb it was made during the height of the Cold War to be made cheaply and mass-produced so of this 667 series what kind of nuclear weapon is it it was developed at the height of the Cold War the Russians made them fast, and they made them cheap. A weapon that old, it could be very unstable. How powerful a bomb are we talking about here? It could be worse, but this one is certainly strong enough to decimate a portion of Denver. We could say 
that these weapons didn't have the insensitive conventional explosives that the U.S. weapons had. So maybe they would be, if you dropped them, if you shot them a certain way, they could go off. But the concern was never really that they would go off and then produce a nuclear explosion. What would happen was that they would go off and they would explode and be a dirty bomb. Because, like I said, the conventional explosives have to go off in a very particular right, way. Right. If they don't go off that way, there isn't a super critical reaction. You just have dispersed nuclear material. Hey, that's the name of the podcast. Hey! Um, no, I mean, that makes sense. It still seems dangerous. And, I mean, this seems to be a concern that's mentioned in a lot of movies, that there are these all these weapons from the Cold War that we overproduce for years, and there's all this stuff out there, and there's just this dangerous nuclear material out there. So I don't know whether there's something to that, whether that's you know, legit, uh, maybe this movie just doesn't really do a good job of covering that. It upended the most common storyline, as you mentioned, which is that there's loose nuclear material that might fall into the hands of a rogue state or a terrorist organization. Uh, this one kind of says, oh, you tried to stop that by decommissioning weapons and you screwed up, idiots. Why did you try to do that? Now they're on trains heading around. You know where your nuclear bombs are at any given moment. Right. That's kind of what they end up doing. So... You know, we, I mentioned earlier the U.S. federal government, they cooperated uh, and they worked with the Russian Federation to do these cooperative threat reduction programs to manage the risk and reduce the number of uh, nuclear weapons that were out there. We didn't buy Russian nuclear weapons. The president makes an effort, a joke. <laughs> we buy Russian weapons to keep them out of the hands of the terrorists. Well, we didn't buy them. We did things like we would purchase the excess amount of fissile material so... When you have the fissile material in a nuclear weapon, it's it's enriched to, say, 90% of the isotope that you need to have a supercritical reaction. When you find these things in, in nature, say uranium, it's less than 1% of that enriched character you, you need. To refine it you have to, to refine to it. Okay. Right. You have to like refine it, mill it, basically get the good stuff in higher concentrations. So what we would do is we would work with the Russians to downblend that from 90% or so down to, say, 3% to 5% so that we could use it for nuclear power reactors. So at one point in the 90s, 10% of all U.S. power came from nuclear power reactors that were fueled by former Russian nuclear weapons, which is which was called the Megaton for Megawatts program. But we never purchased Russian nuclear weapons. We certainly provided aid for all of these different efforts. Uh, the Russian uh, directorate, the 12th main directorate, they were responsible for the arsenal in Russia. Uh, we helped provide things like the safety uh, of Russian nuclear warheads in transit. Uh, we provide better physical protection at storage facilities, counting procedures to track weapons. Uh, you know, used to time, they would have them down in ledgers. We were like, no, maybe you should put them into computers and, and have a better way of like material accountability. Uh, training programs for personnel to make sure that they knew what they needed to do and that you didn't have staff that was going to steal them and sell them on the black market. We gave... Uh, 2,500 Kevlar blankets, as I mentioned, to protect these munitions against small arms fire that might accidentally go off. We gave them 250 super containers to guard against accidents like fire, um, equipment for 100 cargo rail cars, 15th century rail cars, emergency equipment, tons of things. But notice throughout all of this, none of it is involving taking Russian weapons, putting them on airplanes or boats or whatever into Stillwater, Utah to right. be transported to... To Denver. We didn't do that because they didn't want us to, and we didn't want to do it. Well, I think what was interesting in this all for me is that 
you know, all the stuff you're talking about, this speaks to this, this issue of nuclear security. And I, I really thought they were going to come out with a strong message about this. I thought yeah. when, at the end when the president makes a speech, I thought there'd be a clear statement of like nuclear weapons are bad and we need to take more steps to make sure these are secured. And there's really not. We are now going to go to the White House as the president prepares to address the nation. The horror we have witnessed today makes us realize more than ever that in God's eyes, we are little more than children playing with matches. Perhaps the greatest danger we human beings have ever faced is our own genius for invention. Inventions of such awesome power that they seem to take on lives of their own. All we can hope is that we find the wisdom to learn from our mistakes and increase our vigilance to protect ourselves from ourselves. I call on all Americans at this time to pull together, to gather strength and focus on the task at hand, to start anew, to be reborn, to rebuild. And may God help us all. There's really no point to this story. There's no teaching moment. It's really just a showing what this very like remote, impossible disaster would have been like. And there's no there's no broader lesson for what the world should be doing about this problem. And I thought that was kind of a more like meta level critique, aside from all the bad stuff going on in this movie specifically. Yeah, it's basically the only thing you can distill it down to is, well, we shouldn't have built these things in the first place, which is not a bad message. But really the message in this movie is, well, don't transport them on trains, dummy. And we're like, yeah, we don't do that. Or don't, yeah, it's don't, treated, yeah, yeah. It, the whole thing is treated like an engineering failure or like a process failure, you know, rather than really getting to the core critique. That's a weird one out there. Um, but the one thing I think the movie does really well, and, and Elliot, you mentioned earlier that you really liked this part, was showing how much panic there would be in a crisis. I like the idea that there was this evacuation plan, and it didn't really go... For most of the part, until the end when they just decide everything's fine, like it didn't really go well. Like people panicked. They didn't know where to go. They weren't receiving information about where to travel to relative to where the fallout patterns were going to take place. There were militias getting set up around town. The cops didn't have enough guns to handle the you know heavy artillery that these militia people had. You've got a con air situation with the inmates running yeah. the asylum. So all this stuff happens. And that, I think that that's a pretty good representation of what the panic would be like in a crisis like this, both before the bomb goes off and then after. Well, and two, I mean, you see the characters kind of struggle with what to do um, because, you know, and I think about this a lot. If there was a big event, you wouldn't necessarily be able to contact your loved ones easily. You don't, you wouldn't know where to meet. And that's why maybe it's a good idea to have that kind of plan in place. Right. All um, that's like my, my family has a plan of where we would go to. In the event of anything, whether it's a chemical attack, which I think it's you know a likely situation, more likely than a nuclear bomb going off, but all of those things, you kind of want to know where to go to because your phones aren't going to work. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and I think um, I think you can kind of see them. There's no clarity. Like at one point, uh, Seeger's wife Megan, uh, she goes down to this parking garage to seek shelter, but then decides like last minute, like no, I'm going to go out and chance it and mm-hmm. and save. Well, part of the chance, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I just think, I think it's interesting. Um, I don't think it was explored very well, though. In that, it wasn't clear what the impact was going to be. Like, what was the fallout going to do? How was that going to kill people? Um, 
I was really unclear as to why they were evacuating east to Kansas if the they were saying the winds were going east and were going to blow the fog east. Wouldn't you go south to like yes, Colorado I, Springs or something? Maybe that information wasn't getting out to people. I mean, I think there, I think to a degree, Nest is is terrific. The group, people that would respond to this are have a lot of plans and they're very smart. But when you're in uh, a situation like this, it's like the old Mike Tyson saying that I keep repeating on the podcast: is you go into a boxing match with a plan and it falls apart when you get punched in the face like this is kind of what ends up happening here and you have uh civil defense procedures essentially falling apart so and i think uh they another thing that they didn't really get into but in in real life if this happened there would be a tension uh for the government for the people in control with the information Mm -hmm. um is the public how much information is the public owed you know does the public have the right to all the information about what's going on, what the risks are on that kind of thing. I think you certainly would want that, but there's also, you know, a risk of kind of starting a panic. I mean, right. cause you don't know, obviously a priori in a real situation, is it actually going to uh, go off or not? And will it help people to be told that there's a bomb and then they all try to leave or right. they just, do they just need to know there's an evacuation? Like stay inside it, your houses, something's happening or, yeah, or evacuate or evacuate whatever the plans are, but maybe not. Oh my God! It's a nuclear bomb coming down the mountain. So what? <laughs> coming down the mountain, the bomb will come. Uh, <laughs> when it comes. Uh, so there is an idea. So evacuations are were actually a very controversial idea during the Cold War for civil defense. So there's one train of thought. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that says you can have evacuations in the middle of a crisis. You evacuate your major cities, and then therefore there no longer are valued targets. For the Russians to attack us because our cities are evacuated. Therefore, our threats to you are more reasonable because you have less of an ability to inflict damage upon us. Right. So that's one idea. Um, But it's also incredibly difficult to evacuate a city that quickly. Uh, You can see some cities like New York and D.C. very difficult to evacuate because New York is, you know, it's an island. Manhattan at least is an island. There's not many ways to get out of the city. D.C., there's a giant river. In only a few bridges, you'd have to go north into Maryland, which is right in Maryland. There's also additional targets for people to be able to be hit. So it's hard to evacuate people that quickly. Uh, but places, funny enough, Houston, I know we have some friends in Houston. Houston is rated one of the best places to evacuate from because there's – Because of the barbecue? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, would, that would keep people in the city. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's because it's, it's so wide and expansive. There's lots of exits to get out of the city. Um, I know Houston has been going through a lot of troubles with the the floods last year right. uh, and the hurricanes, but you know back in the the Cold War they thought that Houston was an example of a city that you could evacuate from. Um, but there's also an idea that FEMA, actually according to a 2010 guideline in a document called Planning Guidance for Response to a Nuclear Detonation, they don't like the what they call self evacuations because self evacuations may use information that's either not really well-informed. It could be very spontaneous. You see people like Kristen Davis in her character. She just decides to drive into a parked garage and then drive out of it. Well, I'm going to go this way because that's where everybody else is going. Like these decisions may complicate first response in the, in the event of a disaster because then you end up having cities with roads that are all completely blocked off. Um, they're, actually, we, FEMA encourages people until they're told to evacuate during a certain route to stay shelter in place, to stay you know out of the major roads and all of those stuff, you should try to avoid that as much as possible. And once you decide to do this, um, you should go a particular route 
and they're telling local first responders, hey, people are probably going to not ignore, they're going to ignore that information because they're going to want to get out. So you need to make sure you have um, support that you can offer, which is, all right, if you're going to evacuate, here's the places to go to. You need to make sure you have, they literally say public reception centers, medical treatment, decontamination instructions, stuff that we see at the end of the movie very briefly. We see that. So that's what FEMA does recommend, but they certainly don't recommend people to evacuate until they're told. And they were, I would say the public in this movie is definitely getting different pieces of advice. Um, so that's all the nuke stuff that we have for this. I think uh, the movie wasn't great. The nuke stuff was that's very nonsensical. I like to break this up a little bit before we move on to our parking lot movie discussion. I've got a game for you all. You want to play a quick game? Yes. Right. Yeah, let's do it. Shall we play a game? So the game I've got for us today is called Accident Prone. So we have a train accident in this movie. We've had nuclear accidents in real life. The movie decides to combine these two things, but most of the time they're separate. So what I have here, I'm going to give you the name of an accident, which may be the name of the city. It might be, you know, something called like, for example, Chernobyl. And you have to tell me whether or not it is a nuclear accident or a train accident. Okay. They have very similar sounding names. I have 15 of these. So the first person, whoever gets the, the most right answers, uh, will win two prizes. I have two cards here from my deck of uh, nuclear weapon cards, like trading cards. I have one that is a blast effect on a blimp. So you see a blimp. Turns out nuclear bombs cause blimps to crash. So that reminds me of the Hindenburg accident. Or uh, ready to launch which is a Titan II missile. So Gabe cool. might like this one because of the first contact episode that we did. There was also a famous accident with a Titan II missile. So you can pick one of these two things. I have a model train that I picked up on a high-speed rail train in China. So a correct answer will hear this. And an incorrect answer will sound like this. I should say, podcast listeners should be aware that this is an extremely modern-looking train. <laughs> they put a sound effect from, like, I think the Disney mountain uh, ride. Yeah. Like, extremely old, old-timey. old this, this is a really nice train. Uh, this was from the train from uh, Beijing to Qingdao, uh, where we toured the Qingdao Brewery, and also a nuclear power plant in the area. Uh, it also makes this sound, but this is just a long uh, uh, announcer in China telling us to, that the train's about to come to a stop. It keeps going. <laughs> so not great for podcasting, but the other one will be good for this other one because they can push a button. Um, all right. So if you get it right, you get a point. If you get it wrong, negative point. So make sure uh, to not just guess because you'll be in trouble. Mm. All right. First one here called the Awash Accident from 1985. Train or nuclear? Gabe. All right. What do you got? Train accident. Correct. That is a train accident. It is a rail accident, which caused, uh, this is going to be kind of dark throughout this. I apologize. 400 deaths. Uh, it's the worst ever train accident in Africa in 1985 near in Ethiopia. But that's uh, Gabe 1, Elliot 0. Okay, I feel like you kind of put a point on that. That wasn't necessary. <laughs> We're just getting started here. All right, number two. The Goldsboro Incident, 1961. Nuclear or train? Elliot, nuclear. 
Correct. Now it's tied up. 1961, there was an, uh, a B-52 suffered structural failure in its right wing, which caused it to release two nuclear weapons. Uh, one landed safely with little damage. The second fell free and broke apart near Goldsboro, North Carolina. Uh, some of the uranium from that uh, weapon could, was never recovered. And while there was no radiological contamination that they found, uh, a number of safety measures, uh, like say there was five safety measures that stopped the bomb from going off, four of them failed. So it almost was a drop of an actual nuclear explosion on U.S. territory by a U.S. airplane. So very scary time. Uh, number three, the wind scale incident, 1957. Wind scale. Gabe. What do you got? Nuclear. Perfect record for everybody so far. I thought that one's going to sound like a train. It was Britain's first nuclear reactor. A graphite core caught fire for two days, and it released some pretty nasty stuff into the air. Uh, and it gave Gabe a point. So now it's two to one. Number four, the Baku fire from 1995. Train or nuke? Elliot, train. Correct. The Baku Metro fire broke out uh, in the subway system of Baku in Azerbaijan. And it was a pretty big fire caused by an electrical malfunction. So that's two to two. The Balvano incident. Gabe, nuclear. Uh, no, it was train. What? Train? <laughs> uh, this is in southern Italy in 1944. Oh. So uh, one year before we tested our first nuclear bomb, it might have been early. I thought it would have been during the testing of the, oh, yeah, that was my sure. thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was caused by carbon monoxide leaking from the steam engines in one of the locomotives, and it stalled, and a bunch of people got uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. So very different kind of train accident here. So Gabe, you're down to one. Elliot at two. The Jaisal disaster, 1999. Train or nuke? Gabe. Nuclear. Unfortunately, it was a train disaster. In uh, It was in Assam. Two trains carrying 2,500 people collided at the station. Uh, it was pretty nasty. Uh, 290 people died. So oh it was a, two trains hitting each other. The Damascus Titan, 1980. Nuclear or train? Elliot. I'm going to go nuclear. That was correct. Uh, that was the one I referred to a little bit earlier. A Titan missile blew up uh, in its silo when it was undergoing repairs, sending the warhead hundreds of miles into the air and hundreds of feet away from the silo. Fortunately, the warhead was intact, but it was pretty close. Uh, to going off there. So now Elliot has a commanding three to negative one lead. Yeah, this is a train wreck uh, <laughs> of its own in the making. Well, you have a long distance to travel here. The next one is Three Mile Island. Game. Nuclear. <laughs> Correct. I was hoping you would have that one so you can earn yourself <laughs> yes, back to zero. Uh, yeah, that was a, a major... Uh, nuclear meltdown uh, up in New York. Uh, the next one is the Thule Affair from 1968. Elliot, train. 
It was a B-52 bomber that near the Thule Air Force Base in the Danish territory of Greenland. It was carrying four hydrogen bombs. So I'm getting to the point here. It's nuclear. Uh, It was on an alert mission. Uh, It cabin caught fire. The crew had to abandon the aircraft. Emergence, it crash landed and crashed into the sea ice in the North Bay, the North Star Bay. And the conventional explosives caught on board, causing it to detonate a nuclear payload rupture. There was radioactive contamination. So no nuclear bomb going off, but it was quite a bit of contamination. So this was a this was a big one here. Now we're down Elliot two, Gabe zero. So still plenty of action here. We've got a few left. The next one is the Palomares crash, nineteen sixty six. Gabe train. Nuclear. Oh, a a B fifty two carrying four nuclear weapons collided uh, with a KC-135 during a refueling mission near Palomares, Spain. Uh, One weapon was safely recovered on the ground, another from the sea, but it took a long time to search for it, and they thought they wouldn't be able to find it. Uh, This was a very, very dangerous one. Uh, They had to move over 1,400 tons of soil, of contaminated soil, to an approved storage site. So that kind of shows you how dangerous that was. So Gabe, you're now, you're back to, to negative one. Elliot is two. Uh, the Queen of the Sea, 2004. Elliot, nuclear, I suppose. This one was a train. What? So right after the uh, Indian Ocean tsunami struck in 2004 uh, in Sri Lanka, uh, this resulted in the death because it was a very packed passenger train uh-huh. that got flipped over because of the tsunami. Uh, 1,700 people perished. It was on the coast? Yeah. Uh, so that's one to negative one. We have four left. Plenty of time here. Church Rock Spill, 1979. Gabe. Nuclear. Correct. Ah, oh, finally. <laughs> I, tried, I tried to hide that one with a spill. Uh, it was a uranium mill uh, that was uh, had an accident in New Mexico in 1979, a bunch of the uranium uh, millings uh, got mixed with some water in the uh, in a river, and a bunch of the contaminants traveled downstream. So, pretty nasty stuff. Uh, but now it's one to zero. Plenty of opportunity here. Next one is the UFA UFA disaster, 1989. Train or nuke? Elliot, nuclear. Incorrect. It is a train disaster in the Soviet Union. An explosion uh, killed 575 people uh, and injured 800 more. It was the second deadliest railway accident in Russia in Soviet history in terms of combined death. So pretty nasty stuff, but it sounded a little nuclear, so I put that one in there. Last two. The Mayak disaster, 1957. Gabe? Nuclear? Correct. That was the Mayak nuclear fuel processing plant. Uh, it became a site of a major disaster when the cooling system in a waste storage tank failed, causing the dried radioactive material to overheat and explode. So now, oh, no. Gabe is up one. That was one more question to go. So you might just want to run in here. The conveyor crash, 1950. Elliot, train. I'm sorry. This one is nuclear. It is a Convair B-36B crash, 
crashed in a uh, northern British Columbia after jettisoning their Mark IV atomic bomb, the first such nuclear weapon loss in history. So the first broken arrow. Uh, that is a so they, stormy uh, no, comeback. This is a hard-fought battle of questions that neither of us, I think, knew were completely guessing <laughs> on. So. Well, that's usually how I like to make these work. Uh, so congratulations, Gabe. You get your pick of either the Titan II missile silo or yeah. the crashed blimp. Yeah, we're going to go Titan II here, I think. Okay. Yeah. We'll save the crashed blimp one for when Alex is on the podcast. <laughs> he's, he's a big blimp aficionado. Uh, we'll have to send that over his way. Strange game. The only winning move is not to play. All right, so the game is over. Congratulations to Gabe. Uh, let us move on to our parking lot movie discussion. So this is where, say we decided to get really pumped for this movie, and we watched it at one of someone's house, and we're all done with it after four hours, and we're just sitting there trying to figure out what we did with our lives over the last couple of hours, and we're in the parking lot before we go our separate ways. Let's uh, let's go through this. I have I have some questions. I me you, pro- you probably have a lot of questions too, but let's go through provide concluding thoughts, maybe talk about what themes might have been covered in this, if there were any. Uh, The first question I have is, do you think the movie does a good job of mixing genres? Because this is a disaster movie, it's a runaway train movie, there's a melodrama, and then they throw in a nuclear weapon into it. Does the movie do a good job of meshing all those things together? It does not. (laughs) Yeah? It's a complete failure in that regard. I mean, I, I think it doesn't know what movie it wants to be. You know, it's... It is borrowing individual scenes and like vignettes from those different genres, mm-hmm. but it's not putting it together in a way that's effective. I mean, I actually feel like you could cut down like a 90 minute movie if you just stuck with one of these genres and said, okay, we're just going to pay attention to the train part. And then it's going to end with, in that case, like a six, like successfully derailing the train or something mm-hmm. without the nuke going off. Or maybe the nuke goes off, but the fallout is like manageable or whatever, right? Like, okay, that's one way you can do the movie. You could do another movie where, like, the nuke starts... It's either maybe before the movie even starts, like, directly Mm -hmm. preceding it, or maybe in the first five minutes of the movie, the nuke goes off, and Rob Lowe has nothing to do with it. So he hasn't already failed as the hero at that point. And then it becomes, can Rob Lowe get his family out? And there's these different family dynamics that he's trying to work through, and he'll Mm -hmm. earn his stepson's respect by the end. And I think the boyfriend still is going to die either way. You know, you you don't get out of a situation like that with two broken legs. But Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So, you know, I think if you would have stuck with that but then they were trying to make a four-hour miniseries and so that that was really their um kind of the central flaw was uh just a lack of focus do do these kind of disaster movies i know they were very popular uh in the 90s on television do do they still happen these days or has it been replaced by some other big tv event well, yeah, the, you know sharknado right that was that's like the modern day you think so yeah. yeah no i think so i think it was these kind of became old hat you know people saw a lot of them and i think they needed some to up the ante a little bit let's just make it ridiculous like sharknado so i think a lot of the great disaster movies, you know like the roland emmerich type disaster movies there's some interesting characters you get to follow yes there's this big disaster going in the background but there's some interesting people that you're following whether it's right. Will Smith's character, Independence Day, whatever. Here, I, I don't care about any of these people. I mean, it really is, um, they're really not lovable characters, and maybe even the opposite, that their behavior is just strange and, like, puzzling and doesn't really make much sense. And to me, that's the thing. I think if you just had a movie about the disaster, 
I don't think that gets people's attention mm-hmm. anymore. You need to have some the human element there, and it was just missing from this, so it just felt empty. Do you think it was because the family was very have a complicated relationship? Do you think the characters were just uh, didn't really have of interesting roles? To play, what do you think? What do you think that was? Uh, I think they, it was like a solid foundation. I mean, it's you know this idea that you've got the you know the father uh, who who the mom's now divorced from, and there's the new dad, and that's I mean you've seen that in other movies, and it's worked fine, and it's been so. But I think I mean okay, so it's Kristen Davis and Rob Lowe. I mean it's, these are just like boring people in general, you know. Oh. They're just I mean I'm sorry, but Ouch. like they're just I'm sure they're lovely people, but they're not very dynamic. You know what I mean? They don't have like charisma. That you would need to act to develop this, um, this this kind of personal uh, motivations. You know, I mean, I will say, I, I think the one reason I like watching bad movies is when somebody does a trope and they do it super incompetently. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it very obvious what the trope is. And I was thinking about the fact that, like, it definitely used to be in the '90s movies that they would heavily focus. It, they'd be usually the tough guy hero, right? Of right. your Bruce Willis or right. you know. Keanu Reeves or something, but you would develop a personal motivation that was actually like pretty sappy. So it'd be like, you know, he's trying to get back with his wife that he's estranged from, or he's mm-hmm. trying to earn the respect of his son or whatever. And maybe it's just because like we grew up in the nineties, but I really like that. And then I, I feel like that's one reason that um, the superhero movies nowadays, there's so many characters and they go so quick and they basically don't do any of that. Like there's so little time to develop any personal motivation and i think in my opinion they're worst they're worse for that so so i like the idea of it i wish they had just done it more uh uh successfully what what about you tim i mean how did this work for you Uh, you know i know it's tough for you to see through the nuclear nonsense but if you had to kind of forget a little bit about that i mean what's what's your take well i i would i agree with a lot as has already been said about the the idea that this movie could have been shorter but this movie was really a vehicle uh for ratings it was a lot of big moments you making sure that people would not change the channel so you would have all these little seemingly nonsensical scenes of like a death of a character that really didn't need to happen um but like okay well i guess that's i'll I'll continue to see what happens uh after the kitty litter commercial that'll be on but in between this or something i think the movie would have been better if it either picked to decide whether it was going to focus on the after the bomb went off or before uh, one one or the other. The, the, I think the problem there was that the it's not super interesting what they decided to do leading up to the crash. You know, occasionally there was a few things to stop. There were gripping train moments, I suppose. But after the 17th time we saw a train coming around a bend or train connectors trying to connect, it just eventually became fatigue. Uh, but you'd have to have then better characters. You'd have to have better decisions and a better climax than Chance the Sun dangling for hours on a ladder so he couldn't climb up or couldn't climb down that just wasn't really that interesting so by the end of that i I didn't flip through anything i didn't like jump ahead but i definitely had a a eyes glazed over face waiting for this to happen uh so that it would finish whether it was chance falling to his death or being saved i just didn't care anymore because i was curious to see what they were going to do with the after the after the bomb went off um because some of the best movies that i'll recommend I know in our recommendation section at the end, there are a lot of really good TV movies that deal with nuclear weapons. And some of the best ones have a good lead up ahead of time where you care about the characters, the bomb goes off, and then it's them dealing with the situation. This movie tried to tell that story, but it didn't really want to. So can we talk about two... Um, so 
you know, I think I think one major failure of this is it's like there's usually like two ways that a hero gets into one of these disaster movies, right? They're either like an everyman who is just kind of pulled into these events by fate, mm-hmm. right, and sort of then rises to the occasion, or they are some sort of expert or, you know, have some sort of, you know, it's John McClane's a cop or whatever. So, okay, it makes sense that he'd be fighting terrorism and sort of volunteers to put him, you know, get into a situation and be the hero. Right. Right. Okay. In this case, I I feel like the Rob Lowe character, it's just like, this is such like male privilege that you don't, you you don't have the second category. Like you don't have the training or... Um, the knowledge or the skills or anything to really add to this. There's already six people on the train who this is their profession is like running trains. Right. Um, and you're just kind of like hopping off the helicopters. If you're going to be able to freaking do anything about it. And then the movie treats it as if he's a hero too. There's like this scene, uh, it, where the TV news, um, is saying like, you know, go, what's the name? Seeger. Yeah. Go Seeger. Go. <laughs> and it's like, what? Like, what about the five train engineers who are on here? Like, unceremoniously being killed off one by one. <laughs> well, I think it's a meta commentary that they maybe didn't realize uh, reflecting on how the news media, which includes NBC News, on how they handle things like runaway trains or how they handle car chase, for example, or a hostage situation. They'll they'll make stories that are not necessarily maybe the story that's happening, but they'll try to create a narrative. I was also really impressed about how they seem to have all of the information constantly. They knew like who... Uh, Bradshaw disposal was. They knew all of the details. All that stuff got released. They knew all the characters that were being involved. But they wanted to create this like hero dynamic story as opposed to providing people with information about what to do in the event of a disaster. That's the really the good stuff. You get that information and you tell them, hey, go this way, you know, or you know, shelter in place. That kind of stuff that would be interesting. That's not like the car chase side the gripping horse race that's really not what mattered what mattered was the other pieces of information but they decided to focus on it and could maybe they were in sweet weeks too right <laughs> that could have been it the news the news yeah maybe company. it wasn't a, maybe it wasn't a uh, complete coincidence that the, the breaks went out here we i think we need to get to the bottom of that question that would have been great uh, so when there was this funny scene it's not really funny but it's funny to watch uh where the, the helicopter that carried john uh, Seeger, one of 50 or 52 helicopters in the movie, carries him. It's the news helicopter, gets him back into Denver. We find out later, after the bomb goes off, th- this newswoman who interviewed him, her whole crew just abandoned her, and she's, like, burning to death under a girder or something. And he, John pulls her off uh, out of the thing, and she dies in his arms, and he just screams. It's, like, weird, like, it was like the con scream from Star Trek Two, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Bradshaw. <laughs> um, but it would have been interesting if she had her dying wish was, "I got the brakes." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The problem for me ultimately with this film is it's so many different things combined in one, like the the nuke disaster, the waste disaster, the train disaster, the just pure incompetence of government and responses and everything. And it, but at any point of those, you could say, all right, I'm willing to suspend disbelief that in this world, the U.S., this company has the contract to dismantle weapons. And I guess they don't do it with the protection of the government, the military, and they decided to save a little bit of bucks on insurance. Okay, all of those things. But then also, okay, well, there are brakes that don't work. Okay, fine. 
and breaks that don't work because they ignore the history of the last 150 years of brake technology. They decide to just ignore that. Okay, fine. So that's not a thing. But there's too many of those. The way I described this movie to my wife when we were, when I was watching it and she came in and asked me if I was ready to go to bed at 1 a.m. And I said, no, I have to finish Atomic Train. It's very important. Was It was suspension of disbelief fatigue. There were too many moments in this movie where I had to do that. And it became incredibly distracting. Uh, but maybe if I was 1999 and I was watching this at home with some popcorn, uh, maybe I would enjoy it a little bit more. But I probably would not have tuned in for day two. So that's that's the thing, too. I think it's pretty clear that they had a mandate to write a film in which the bomb went off in day two. And mm. that's why, if you look at the way it's cut in, the bomb is like, it goes off maybe 20 minutes into the second, you know, day's miniseries portion. And ultimately, that's what ends up causing, like, the narrative, a lot of the narrative problems. It's like, once you, once you have the bomb go off, I get why that gets you to tune in. But narratively, it's like a trump card, and then everything else in the film gets kind of overshadowed by mm. it. I have not watched the ads for this, but I almost promise you that the mushroom cloud is in the little ad, the little 15 second ad. So what I wanted to do when I, when I saw that this movie was in existence and you said you wanted to watch a bad movie, uh, I pulled up the YouTube and I searched for the trailer for atomic train. Cause I remember it being a bad, everyone said it's a bad B movie that combines these, all these different elements. The trailer makes it look very exciting. But also kind of over-the-top fun. Lots of Rob Lowe yelling, like dangling off the side of a train. And it's like, and a nuclear bomb that's got secretly put onto a train. And that train's out of control. And it's heading for Denver. I think the tagline for this movie was, this train's last stop is deadly. And it's like, okay, this, is, this could be an interesting movie to watch. Uh-huh. But it doesn't deliver on any of those things. It's, at some point in the movie, it kind of switched tracks and went around this really bad, boring movie route. What would you say is the, the theme of this film? Like I said, there was no parable or lesson here. It's just about failure, about people sucking at their jobs. But, I, but is that interesting? Because I know people, critics that talk about this movie yeah. in, in, you know, in retrospect, they say it's, it's an interesting film because the heroes try 30 or 40 different things. None of it works. And the bomb still goes off. Is that a reflection of reality, of the human condition, is that we're basically just continuing oh, I think, to yeah. respond to I think, failure? I think you're giving these the writers a lot more credit than they deserve. I mean, yeah, I guess you could look at it that way. My problem is that the things that they're trying are just nonsensical, and they, mm. they don't end up working because of ridiculous reasons. If they did, If it was carefully thought out well written you know you think about something about like perseverance when i think about a movie like that i think like an apollo 13 type movie right Mm. um where you see them trying all these different things it has a much different tone and the stuff they're trying makes sense even though it doesn't work it's because of some other intervening thing here it's just their incompetence that seems to not make it work yeah a lot of bad decisions I mean, I kind of like this idea. Let's make this movie next, where it does end with them. But it's just, it, it would have to be super dark in tone, the whole thing. And it would have to be, you know, there's a weird lack of a sense of urgency of everybody involved in, like, mm-hmm. that whole... And that's what's really, like, not working here. You know, it's like, the way the characters are dealing with it is not in proportion to how worried they should be and how frantic they should be, you know? Yeah, they make a lot of odd decisions. Like, when Wally, the train conductor, said, oh, I'm going to stay on the train. I'm going to go down with the train. And then Rob Lowe goes, oh, don't you have grandkids? And he, like, points to a picture. You Wouldn't you want to see them again? And he goes, oh, yeah, I do have grandkids. You're right. I'm going to save myself now. 
a lot of odd choices like that where you're supposed to that's supposed to mean something i mean if you had if you actually had rob Lowe doing something doing anything with his knowledge like really putting everything on the table trying everything he possibly could have and then it still goes off that's maybe that's maybe an interesting movie because it yeah. does upend your expectation there and then i think maybe you have a very very short epilogue afterwards but i think you kind of have to end it there because everything else you do after that is just going to be overshadowed. And, and everything that did happen at the after the bomb went off yeah. was just pointless. It was things that didn't need to be in that movie. Yeah. It could have been in any other disaster movie or just a uh, a road trip movie where they decided yeah. to be on a motorcycle and they go through an abandoned warehouse. And I think Rob Lowe dies in the scenario. And that's mm. partly how he, as a character, is absolved. It's like he he made the you know the ultimate sacrifice for it and so even though he failed and all these other people died then we still again feel like he did everything that he could but him 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 living and then driving other people off the road afterwards it's like you're not a hero man i mean there's a scene where he a guy in a yellow sports car drives into where he is and that person's dead he must have died somehow i have no idea what happened there whether because see the car was still working so it's not like the car was in an accident and a bunch of people try to like he takes the person out of the car and tries to see if they're okay and then a bunch of people try to steal the car and Rob Little goes, Get back, get back, you guys are savages. And then what does he do? He just takes the car. So he basically kicked other people out so he could have the car. These are our heroes consistently happening. Uh, and that's why I think we should we should end this now and let's do our rating system. Uh, we always like to rate things one out of five, so it's a consistent scale across all of our films. Uh, but because we get super critical about the plot, let's get very detailed and super critical about our rating system. So I tailored it today. I've crunched the numbers. Let's do one out of five atomic train cars. Here's my thinking. Just one atomic train car is perfectly fine, but it's not enough to hide all of your super critical contraband from the insurance company. But if you have five train cars, you can smuggle a whole nuclear triad out of the country. So Gabe, let's go first. Uh, for you, how many out of one out of five atomic train cars would you give this TV movie? Yeah, I mean, oh, I I think probably two. Um, I was thinking about a one, but two is really, it's still it's watchable, I guess. Um, and there's some there's like dialogue and people acting, I guess. Um, so it just it gets a two on the basis that it's actually a movie that was produced in a just to, to some standard of production quality but no it, there's really for me this was not something you should waste your time seeing um for all the reasons we've discussed and, and even though it's free it's on youtube it's, if you yeah want. you can watch it on youtube uh don't just listen to this podcast and <laughs> listen to us make fun of it and talk about the nuke stuff elliot what do you would you give this uh yeah i mean i have the similar dilemma you know i think for anybody listening to this podcast it's a one do not go and seek this out under no circumstance i mean it was it's probably the boringest thing i've i've ever watched so i have you you guys to thank for that um i I mean that said again it does have okay production values if you're the kind of guy that just like turns the action movie channel on and just like lets it play all day you're you're gonna be fine with the four hours that is going through this movie like whatever you know it's but it's background it's just background if you just think of it as b-roll then it's fine. Then it's B good movie B roll. B movie B roll. Yep. Perfect. So. That, that's a good another podcast name. <laughs> um, I would also give this uh, a two. I'm um, similar with Gabe. Is that you know it's a film where there are some scenes that are well done. Every actor in this movie, except for maybe Chance, 
is a big name actor, or at least was and became one. You know, you have the daughter Grace, uh, Mina Cerveni, uh, You have Kristen Davis. You have John Rob Lowe. You've got the president. Um, you have everybody at this movie is filled with great character actors. The military guy is the same military guy from Twin Peaks, like basically playing the same character. Everybody in this movie, Isai Morales, they're all really good in other things. So that's why it was kind of interesting to see them not so great in this. It, it's definitely a slog. It's hard to get through. It's way too long. Uh, so I'm just going just gonna to still give this a two. I would not go as far as to say, like, don't watch it. But I would definitely say watch it and maybe make ample use of the fast forward button. You see a scene you don't like, don't worry about it. It's not important. <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, keep going with it. You'll be you'll be perfectly fine. Uh, so let's move on to things that we would recommend people to watch or read or enjoy. If you like this movie, you know, good for you. Here's some other things like it. If you didn't like this movie and you want something better, here's what I would recommend checking out. So I have three things here. The first is, you know, there's a bunch of really good movies about nuclear weapons and nuclear war that are TV movies that I would recommend 100 times better, some of which we've already covered on the podcast. Uh, so people that have already listened would should know about them. Uh, the movie Special Bulletin, which is a, a film that we did on the podcast where a whole thing is done to make it look like a TV newscast of a uh, terrorist incident with a nuclear bomb in South Carolina in the Charleston Harbor. It, I think this movie is it's hokey at times, but it's incredibly well done. And once the bomb goes off, Every scene after that is one of the most powerful things I've seen on television. It makes it look incredibly realistic. The reactions to the characters, the, the medical response, all that stuff is great for describing really here's how it would look like and here's how people would respond and here's how bad uh, first response would be. I would recommend checking that out, that movie out. The movie Threads, it's a BBC TV movie. We've already covered that movie. That episode of our podcast was four hours long because there was so much to talk about. Those are better. There's also a better TV movie starring Rob Lowe. Uh, I would recommend a film called, a TV miniseries from 1994 called The Stand. Uh, it's not great, but it's better than this one. It also stars Rob Lowe. In this movie, he's a, I think he plays a mute uh, dealing with this really weird story where there's an accidental release of weaponized influenza that kills like 99% of the world's population. So there's just these bands of people who happen to have immunity to it. And then it turns out that it's actually some sort of weird battle between God and the devil. It takes place in the, like the Nevada desert area. It's super weird. It's a Stephen King book. It's very long. But it's it's it gripped me when I was a kid and I watched it. And again, it stars Rob Lowe. And there's even, um, you know, not just the biological weapon, but there's also a scene with a character called the Trash Can Man who hauls a stolen nuclear bomb with an ATV, like, to blow up Las Vegas. It's crazy, but it works better than this movie at any point does. So I'd recommend checking that. And if you're more interested in the reading and not so much the watching, I recommend reading a 2011 report by Michael Crapon called Moving from MAD, M-A-D, to Cooperative Threat Reduction. It's a good history of the CTR efforts that we talked about in the episode. It tells us how we got it right and what we did to avoid things like contractors bringing nukes on trains in the United States. We did things better uh, than the film did. So that's kind of what I would recommend to check out. Uh, Gabe, Ellie, anything you want people to watch instead? Uh, yeah, uh, I would recommend um, if you want to see sort of like what a better what's a better version of this movie. You mentioned the disaster side uh, on the train side. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a 2010 movie, Unstoppable, with Denzel Washington and Chris Pine 
And uh, it's based on that real-life um, Ohio train accident that I was mentioning mm. earlier. And so it goes through a lot of the similar plot points for the, you know, can we stop the train kind of portion. Um, and they kind of tie it back again with the personal motivations of, like, I think Chris Pine's family lives in the town where this the chemicals, if they derail, you know, this explosion would happen. So he's kind of got skin in the game, you know. And he, I think there's some stuff it's like maybe his ex-wife or something and so you know it's just it's it's just a very solid like this isn't rocket science guys you know here's how you put a movie together like this and get us to kind of care about the characters um and then it kind of stops in the right place i mean i won't spoil the ending on it but it doesn't it it knows when to uh to end it so again that was unstoppable from 2010 all right so that's great uh thanks elliot for that and thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, sorry it was under these circumstances, but if you enjoyed your time here, we'll have you back. Maybe we'll do a, a good, bad movie as opposed to just this awful one. That sounds great. Thanks for having me. You don't have a Twitter or anything, right? Or anything you want to describe? I've got an HBO special coming out. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be on an episode of Modern Family. Check me out there. Excellent. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong about either trains or nukes, uh, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Our website, supercriticalpodcast.com. You can contact us through the contact page there. We also have some resources and some of the things we use to develop this episode. You can read those there. Uh, we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. And I also check the old email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the program, hey, go on iTunes, go on wherever you uh, listen to the episode and give us a five-star review uh, that helps us grow the show and it makes us feel loved uh, and makes us feel like we watching a four-hour or so uh, nuclear train movie makes it all f worthwhile uh, when we see those five stars pop up. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Gabe. And Elliot. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.